This audio podcast is available on YouTube, Apple and Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, etc. Or you can add an RSS feed to a podcast player or download the MP3 file from my website. Links for all will be included in the description for each episode. If you're listening to the podcast, for example, via Apple Podcasts, a rating and a review would be appreciated. And on YouTube, subscribe to my channel and click the notification bell icon. And likes are always welcome, as are any comments or questions you may have. Sharing the podcast also helps, and of course, liking, subscribing, following and sharing when checking out any links included for each guest. And please forgive any audio issues which occurred during the recording of this episode. I was in such awe of this week's guest, I guess I didn't notice. Improvements, as always, are a constant work in progress. Thank you. Cheers. Although, if people don't like, they're going straight down into David Jones's locker, so they better click the like button. Welcome to the Sim Racing Perspectives podcast for Wednesday, the 6th of November 2019. I'm your host, Davy Jones, and I'm delighted today to be joined by racing driver and sim driver, David Perel. Hello, David. Hey, thank you so much for having me, David. You're, you're welcome, and thank you again for joining. Now, um, David, I have some notes here that I would like to use as a basis for this conversation. And you are somebody I've been kind of following for a while and somebody I was looking to get on the show. Thank you. Awesome. And indeed, uh, recently you did a podcast with Zach Hodgson of Turn Racing. And um, before we begin, I would encourage listeners to perhaps pause this episode and go go and listen to your conversation with Zach and then maybe come back and continue with this one because in a way I wanted uh, this conversation to be a, a sort of a continuation of sorts of your conversation with Zach or take elements from it and you come across to me as a very humble, capable guy which, which I respect deeply and Zach is somebody who, who was also doing everything himself and, and I, I would encourage people to Go and check out the podcast and go and check out Zach's channel. I mean, there's a video of, of Zach on his channel building a, a four Ferrari 488 GTE wheel out of carbon fiber, doing all the milling, making all the ele- electronics himself and the hand grips. And not only that, does he, does he do everything himself? He uh, does all his marketing and everything. He recently uh, announced on Twitter that with his church group, he was taking a week in Mexico to volunteer at an orphanage. <laughs> yeah, Zach is so, a fantastic guy. Awesome, awesome. Zach is is amazing. So, so I just wanted want to do uh, to add that note. So, so David, you're you're from Cape Town, South Africa, and you're in London today. And uh, I wanted to talk about now. You mentioned that you had been in um, uh, Portugal recently driving for the Euro Le Mans series in in the Ferraris. So, so was that testing preseason or how? What, what was it exactly? Um, so the European Le Mans series is a championship organized by the same people who sort of own and run the the, the 24 hours of Le Mans. So I, I think back in the day, uh, the, you just used to have Le Mans. And prior to that, the, the GT and prototype teams would have to find uh, individual races to try and fill the calendar before Le Mans preparation. Yes. Um, so now they have this, this European Le Mans championship. And the, the winner... In each category, LMP2, LMP3, GTE, uh, get an invite to the Lamar grid, 
So you can't just phone up Le Mans one day and say, I want to enter. You have to earn your entry on that grid. Okay. And um, winning the ELMS championship is one of those things. So I was racing for a team called Kessel Racing, which yes. I started my GT3 career in. Um, so, well, it's Kessel Racing forward slash Iron Links. And um, their regular driver, one of their regular drivers, because you need three drivers in the car, um, he decided to step out of the car for the remainder of the season, um, which opened up an opportunity for me to to race uh, with the team. So I was doing the final round of the ELMS championship um, with Kessel and Iron Links uh, in the GTE category. Yes. And that's in the Ferrari 488 GTE, I guess. Yes, uh, which is similar but different to the GT3. Indeed, indeed, because they they race in, in both categories. And you recently published an uh, onboarding story. You recently published an onboard story video from Valle Lunga, and that was in preparation for the Nations Cup and the Italian GT Championship. Uh, that was a recording from, from September two months ago. And you got podium there, was it so? Uh, yeah, we had a really, really good race. Um, I managed to get pole position, which was very satisfying because qualifying is something I've always struggled with. I do occasionally do a good lap, um, and I'm happy that I managed to do one this time. And then um, in the race, uh, we played a, quite a conservative strategy and ended up it ended up being the right strategy because uh, we won our class and finished um, third overall. So very happy with that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we got to share the track with two Formula former Formula One drivers, which is very cool. Um, and yeah, it was a fun race. Frustrating from my stint because I couldn't overtake the guy. I saw that. I yeah. saw that indeed. Yeah, and I linked to the video. <laughs> excuse me. I linked to the video directly in the in the podcast description. And indeed, you were racing behind Jack Villeneuve and Jacques Arnold Vizikella, which was which was fascinating. Now we'll move on. I wanted to kind of talk about your career and then the different seasons, and then we'll go via topic if if we can. I'll refer to my notes. I've done a bit of homework here, so I don't forget anything. So so basically, you're currently racing in silver class in pro am. So, yeah, okay, so uh, it's a bit complicated because uh, the GT World Challenge is complicated. Um, they have two they have two championships, really. Well, they have three, but it's the the first one is the sprint championship, which is called the GT World Challenge Europe. And in that championship, we were racing in the pro am category. And yes. uh, the pro am category requires one bronze driver, one pro driver. So my teammate Renats, he was the bronze, and I was the pro. Um, okay. However, in the Endurance Championship, which this year was called Blancpain GT Endurance, uh, we were competing in the Silver Cup category. And that requires three drivers of a maximum rating of silver. So you can have a bronze in the car. And in okay. this case, Renat was our bronze driver, but he's he's so quick that we we took the risk to enter in the Silver Cup. So both both championships, the GT World Challenge and the Blancpain GT, um, fall under the SRO organization, Stefan yes. Sell organization. And it's basically, that's where GD3 racing comes from. He kind of invented the category, um, which you see now in, in America as GTD. You see the GTEs in Le Mans and stuff. But it was Stefan Rattel who kind of brought GT racing to the front. Um, and yeah, I've been competing in that championship for three years now. So this year was endurance and sprint. Uh, last year I did some some one-off races, uh, but yeah, uh, we had a tough season in Blancpain, 
Um, luckily, the second half of the season, we started to get some results, but it, overall, it was it was pretty difficult. Yeah, very competitive. And Stefan Rattel, he was a driver himself back in the day, wasn't he? Uh, I believe so, but more a gentleman driver, more uh, from amateur angle, yeah. Exactly. Now, I have here that you started uh, with Gran Turismo 1 at the age of 13, and at the time you thought you could use it to become a racing driver, and you continue to use it to make yourself a better driver on an ongoing basis, and also that you used to go to the Ferrari dealership in Cape Town to stare at the cars, which I, I, I can appreciate. And this is something you mentioned um, uh, when you were talking with, with Zach uh, on the Turn podcast. And then you also told the story of um, before your 21st birthday, you had the option of a karting race in Italy and you needed 6,000 euros to join. But your dad said, okay, well, I'll provide the flight and you, if you go and be a mechanic. And then you talked about on the last day you, you went to Fiorano and you stood you stood on the bridge overlooking um, a racetrack and watching F1 testing. And that was a kind of a precursor to what was to become, wasn't it so? Uh, yeah, I, I still think of that story relatively often because I find it quite surreal. Um, yeah, I was meant to do that karting race. I, in the end, I couldn't find the 6,000 euros, but my dad, let he paid for my flight to go be a mechanic for the team I was meant to race for. Um, and then on the last day we went to Fiorano and we stood on it. There's a bridge there, um, where you can see, I, th- I can't remember exactly which turn, but if you stand on the bridge, you can see the track, parts of the track. And, um, there was a formula one car going around. Um, I didn't really have grand ambitions of getting to F1 by that point. My dad gave me a, a huge reality check when I was 18 years old and said, how you, there's no chance for you, son. Um, you you don't have the money. And at the time I wasn't doing very well in karting. So he's like, you probably don't have the talent either to get to F1. And he was, he was right, but I still loved F1. I still loved yeah. racing. And, um, I was hungry enough to, to keep going. Um, I was stupid enough to ignore his advice. Um, so yeah, many le- years later, uh, I was the most successful Ferrari GT driver in the world in 2000 and, um, Seven, 2017 and I found myself inside the Fiorano racetrack uh, receiving awards for that feat so that was that was ridiculous you know <laughs> frankly it was pretty ridiculous but still cool um, I hope yeah I hope I appreciate it when I'm older to get that far based on how, how, where you had become and then you noted that you quit karting at 23 and I think you if I looked it up you were sixth in the world in Rotax Max Challenge in yeah. senior class, was it so? Yeah. And then you decided to work flat out on your business to make enough money to come back. Now, I want to talk about what you do on, on, on your kind of personal business level later on. And then I also noticed on the, your driver DB profile, there's a reference to a 2008 Formula Volkswagen in South Africa. What was that? Yeah, so just before I quit racing entirely, after I finished sixth uh, in the Rotax Max World Finals, um, with my karting mentor, Claudio Piazzamuso, he, together, we haggled our way into a Formula car. Um, there yeah. was this new series in South Africa called Formula Volkswagen. I forget the chassis, but um, basically these chassis, chassis had come from Germany, where there was a, some single-seater racing there. And then with the South African organizers put... Um, Volkswagen rally engines in the cars, 250 horsepower, two liter engines. Yeah. Sounded incredible. Uh, and I raced those for three races, but I, 
in in South Africa, we just we can't cope because of our currency. The the, the, the expenses to run carbon-based cars is just so it's just too much. And uh, okay. in three of the races, I damaged the front wing, um, either in practice or in the race itself. Uh, one of them was my fault. The other two, I was involved in accidents I couldn't avoid. Um, but that alone equated to about eighty thousand rand, which is a deposit on a house. So yeah, uh, the team said, "Sorry, bud, you're out." Um, so I did three or four races uh, in the formulas. Um, but that's when I quit. I, I quit after they kicked me out the team. So, um, you know, at the time I didn't really understand everything because I was very fast. Um, I was racing against, I was in the top three or four in every race competing against guys who'd tested A1 GP cars and GP2 cars. Um, and I just didn't understand why you wouldn't keep me on, you know, but yeah. After stopping that, after stopping Formula, I I realized that racing, it, to, to get in you need money, and uh, you have to accept that. That is table stakes, um, and it has nothing to do with talent because everyone in racing who's made it actually is very talented. Even the guys who paid their way there. The truth is everyone paid their way there, but some of them got it from their family, which good for them, and some of them you know got it from business or from being able to find sponsors. So. Exactly. I said to myself, I have to do one of those three things. My family isn't going to give me the money. So uh, I said, okay, let me put the dedication that I put into racing. Let me put that into my business with my brother, who is my co-founder. Um, he was yeah. also incredibly dedicated. And um, that's where, that's when I decided to stop. And I stopped properly. I didn't visit racetracks. I didn't visit, I didn't um, log, on to, log on to autosport.com, which I'm incredibly addicted to. Um, I didn't, I just, racing was no longer a thing for me. However, it was a thing in that I knew I was going to come back, but I didn't want to be drawn into it too early. So I kind of switched off. And then, then later you came back then as a gentleman driver, paying your way to race. Basically, you still had the dream of being a, a factory driver for Ferrari and, at some point, And also maybe, uh, racing at Le Mans, which you've been competing for. Yeah. Which, and of course, based on your achievements so far, it's kind of Le Mans like a, a cherry on top at this point. So then you competed in the um, 2014 uh, Super Trofeo Finals um, in a Lamborghini. Yes. And then you found the team that needed a bronze driver in 2015 and uh, the team called you and then you got to, to race the Italian GT in 2015. So then how did you come from from deciding to kind of pull back and quit a little and then and then up to 2014, 2015, becoming a gentleman driver to pay away. Now, obviously, um, you had decided to pull back and, and um, work hard on your business to make some money to... Um, afford it. To, yeah, to afford it. But talk us through that, through that process. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't a linear process. It was kind of hacked together, but I, kind, I knew... Okay, when I was um, working on my business, I would wake up every morning and think to myself, I can't believe you're not a racing driver. You know, mm. I mean, I distinctly remember staring at the ceiling a few times and going, this is unbelievable that I work on computers. Um, I was pretty good at that. Um, but that was never my dream. And I would say when I was in high school, I said, the, the one thing I'm never going to do is, is work behind a desk. And that's kind of what I found myself doing. And I loved my business. I loved working with my brother a lot. We have a yeah. very, very good relationship. But I still had this this fire in me that I had to be try to become a racing driver. I felt I was good enough, uh, maybe not the best, but good enough. Um, 
So I was saving money. I was saving money, uh, not in a special account or anything, but you know, with from the business side and uh, from the personal side, I had money enough money to do something if I one day pulled the trigger. So I think in 2012, I I read about this karting race called the African Open, and the winner of the African Open would get a ticket to the Rotax Max World Finals. Now I finished sixth in 2007. But I, I should have won it. That's my opinion still to this day. Um, I should have. I made a small mistake and dropped from the top three. I dropped to P9 and then fought my way back to six. So I made a mistake and I, I never kind of forgave myself for that. So I said to myself, okay, I need to, l- let me give this one more shot. Okay, this time when I come back to racing, um, it's going to be my own money. It's going to be, uh, I'm going to have, in karting terms, a relatively unlimited budget in karting terms and i'm going to throw everything i can at this one-off race um so overall in terms of spending money for a season it was much cheaper and in the end i mean in today's money i spent less than five thousand pounds to do this race Uh, but in south africa that's a monstrous a monstrous amount of money in in the uk it is a lot of money but it's you can find a way and um yeah I'd fly to the track. It wasn't it wasn't in Cape Town where I lived. It was two thousand kilometers away in Durban. Uh, I'd fly there every weekend. Um, I rented a, all the equipment. Um, I had a good team. And when I got to the final, the African Open final, um, I had to start last because we had a problem in the pre-final, and I ended up finishing second. Uh, so I fought my way through the pack and finished second. So I didn't get the the ticket. But in that moment. I proved to myself that there was still something there. I mean, keep in mind, prior to that 2012 race, I didn't go near a racetrack. So I proved to, to myself that I still had the ability to race and compete. Um, then, so I continued doing the one-off race. Then 2013, I did it again. I finished second again, I think, again from last on the grid. And then 2014, I did it for a third time. And by this point... I wasn't thinking of going to GT racing, by the way. I was just trying to kind of scratching an itch. I was trying to get to the world finals again. Um, And in 2014, um, the day before the final race in the African Open, I cracked a rib. So Ah, I still still did the the actual final with some painkillers and I finished fifth. Um, and just by the way, for those listening, the, the, the level of competitiveness in South African karting is incredibly high. Uh, we had during my time, six world champions come from South Africa. Uh, my karting mentor was a world champion. So in order to qualify for the Rotax max finals, you had to beat world champions in order to do it. Ah, um, okay. Yeah. So it was very, very competitive, very high bar. So you weren't just beating, um, your average Joe, you're beating guys who took karting quite seriously. Yeah. Um, okay. So after I cracked my rib, um, I, then I decided to retire properly and I gave away all my racing stuff. I gave away my helmets and everything. Um, but the race was in April or something like that. And, uh, in June or July, when is, when is Lamar? I think it's in June. June. I was second week of June. Yeah. Yeah. I was sitting there, uh, watching Lamar. I saw a guy standing in the pit lane. It was the night stints. And he was standing in the pits and uh, he decided, I, I looked at him and I said, wow, imagine standing in the pits at night and there's a GT car coming towards you and you're about to jump in that thing and go drive into the night. I mean, at Lamar, that must be, that must be amazing. Um, I wonder, 
if I could get there. So I did some maths. There's uh, 60 cars on the grid and three drivers per car, 180 drivers. I'm, I'm pretty sure I can be one in 180. So that's sort of how it got going. It started in 2012 when I finished second in African Open, yeah. um, proving to myself I had the ability. Then the following season, 2013, um, that team I raced for offered me a full season of karting um, as sort of their pro driver. I didn't get paid or anything. I was actually still paying money, but they provided me with the chassis. Um, and then it went from there. And then during that whole time, by the way, I was using uh, Gran Turismo and uh, what else was I using? I think iRacing or R-Factor um, to stay sharp. So, you know, since this is a podcast about the sim racing stuff. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> I've always been a huge, 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 huge fan of using sim racing to prepare for the real thing. Um, yeah. And I mean, now I've taken it up many levels since then because I wasn't taking it as seriously back then, but I was always playing it with the thought of sort of how do I use this to improve my on-track experience? Because when I was racing karting, I was racing on such a shoestring budget, I had no money for testing. I would just arrive at the races. Um, sometimes I would just arrive on race day. And in karting, yeah. if, you're not, if you're not there from Wednesday practicing, you're missing out, you know. So I always thought to myself, okay, well, I got the PlayStation. I can use the PlayStation to, to practice. Um, well, my competitors are at the track. So, yeah, that's kind of, that's my application of some racing at the moment. And you mentioned, you told the story to Zach, was it in 2014? You had a, you had, you said you had a belief in yourself that you could become a pro. And then there was a guy, an engineer called Gianfranco. And he said to you, you have enough talent to be a professional. And then you kind of, well, you knew then you had to continue, wasn't it? So was that in... Was that in 2014 during the uh, Super Trofeo days? Yes. Um, so in 2014, I did two races. Um, yeah. The first one was in September in the Italian GT, but I was racing a Super Trofeo spec car, which is a Gagliardo Lamborghini V10. Um, and at that point, uh, my engineer, um, the engineers in GT racing are freelancers. So they, they chop and change between teams. But Gianfranco was very old and experienced, um, a friend of my manager, Alan McDonald. And um, after the event, I, I did quite well in the Italian GT. I almost, I had the pace to be on the podium. I'd never driven on uh, such a heavy car. I'd never driven at Imola, um, but I had some pace and I was pretty happy, honestly. And I was, I was ready to go home. I didn't, I mean, after trying to get to Lamar, which was in the same year, I, I mean, after making the phone calls to try to get to Lamar, I realized that I didn't have the money to get there. They needed like 300,000 euros for a seat. And even if you had the money, you needed like, you needed some kind of CV to prove that you could drive at Lamar. You know, no team's just going to give it to you. And I was like, geez, no. uh, this is sounding more like a million euros, not 300,000 euros. And uh, I had like, I don't know, I had like 20,000 euros, you know. So, yeah. So, after the Italian GT, I was like, cool, I ticked that box. I raced overseas. I raced at Imola. I raced in a Lamborghini. You know, how much more could you want? Um, and then Gianfranco said to me uh, at dinner after the event, I mean, this guy, he'd worked with Juan, Juan Matoya. He'd worked with uh, Tom Christensen, Pedro Diniz. I mean, ah, okay, yeah, he's seen them all. And he said, you know, you have the ability and the professionalism to become a pro. And that was like... He should have never told that to me, frankly. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he said to me, look, if there's more opportunities, I will um 
I will let you know. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I've heard that story a million times in my life. I came home to South Africa. I was very content and happy and uh, got on with my job. And then, true as hell, uh, Gianfranco gave me a call. He gave my manager, Alan McDonald, he gave my man, uh, Alan a call. Oh, by the way, Alan wasn't really my manager at the time. He was just the guy who managed to get me the seat in Super Trofeo. Yes. And we kind of just kept going from there. Um, yeah. So Alan called me and said, look, Gianfranco just gave me a shout. There's this World Finals Super Trofeo event in Malaysia, and they want you in the car. And, um, uh, you know, ca can you find the money to get there? And uh, I kind of found the money to get there. I think I found half of it. And I was teamed up with a driver called Mirko Bortolotti, who is a very, very, very good and successful uh, GT3 driver these Indeed. days. And he's in ACC, actually. He's in the opening. He's yes. in the opening video yes. in the career for Assetto Corsa Competizione, which we'll talk about later. Yes, indeed. Yeah, uh, yeah correct. And uh, yeah, so he was my <laughs> teammate, and I was like, oh my god. So we were racing in the pro am. So they needed an yeah. amateur. I was the am, and uh, we were leading the race, and uh, came into the box to do the driver change. I went out the pits to turn one turn two got to turn three no brakes the brakes failed uh crashed oh the wall broke my leg was a mess it was an absolute mess the team was really upset with me they told me it was my fault it only turned out like two months later that they found out that it wasn't uh, my fault um, but at the time they're like you'll never be a racing driver again like go home sit oh god that was yeah. terrible it was terrible 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 i i really truly had a sh <laughs> shocking day <laughs> Uh, wow, and my leg hurt like hell. Uh, yeah. So did you actually break the leg? Yes, I broke my leg. Yeah. Oh wow! But well, did I, you go back to Cape Town? Sorry, David. Did yeah. you go back to Cape Town then in a cast, or how did it go? No, I didn't even have a. Um, the track didn't even have a. What do you call it? A crutch. So yeah. At the time, my my leg just hurt a lot. Like it was in a lot of pain, um, but I could still kind of put weight on it. So I thought that I just bruised it or something. Um, yeah. But by the time I got back to Cape Town, I was, I couldn't walk out the plane and eventually went for an x-ray. They're like, oh no, you've, you've broken your leg. Um, wow. So uh, that was a low point because at that point, uh, the team didn't want to hear from me and everything. However, once they defined, discovered that the brakes had failed and I didn't just decide not to brake. Yeah. Um, so they gave me a call and they said, okay, we need you again. Uh, for the Italian GT Championship in 2015, um, can you uh, can can you find the budget? And the the budget they needed was 105,000 euros. Yeah, it's a lot of money. Yeah. Oh, it's a nice house. I can tell you that. <laughs> Big time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I didn't have the money, but uh, no. What I did was I'd already, um, as a coincidence, kind of, I'd sold um, a portion of my shares in my company and that gave me enough for half of the season. So that was very reckless. And, um, that was a major risk that I took. Probably the first risk that I took was taking the money that I should have kept for when I was older and using it for half a season of GT racing without any indication that that money would, or that season would take me further as a racing driver. Yeah. So I, I signed this contract for hundred thousand euros knowing fully well that I only had about 40 um, and went racing. And um, by the middle of the season, I told the team, look, I've run out of money. 
um, and then they started to give me sort of concessions and delay invoices and uh, I found some sponsors I sold my car I sold whatever I had I sold whatever I had uh, to to keep going um, and in the, I mean that season was very good and I won more races than anyone else I got more pole positions I uh, should have won the championship, I think, uh, but we had two we had two incidents and one puncture. Yeah. Um, but in the end, it was a good thing that I didn't win the championship, and I'll explain that in a second. Um, and that was it, really. I didn't. The, the team needed more money for the next year. They needed instead of a hundred thousand, they needed about two hundred and fifty. Wow. And I was like, well, I I didn't even have a hundred. How the hell am I going to find that level of money? And then full credit to my manager at the time, Alan. Um, by now, we'd developed a really good relationship, and he was coming with me to all the races. And he was just helping me out of kindness or something. Uh, he heard about a possible seat in GT3 racing in the Blancpain GT with Kessel, with Ferrari. Yes. And uh, and uh, that's that was the next step. They also needed a lot of money. Um, but... It was a different level. I was I was able to find someone who could help me, and uh, that was the, sort of the next chapter. Um, so the reason that it was good that I didn't win the Italian championship is usually if you win a championship, the FIA looks at your results and your performance, and they'll regrade you from a amateur to a. So there's there's four rankings: bronze, silver, gold, platinum. A bronze is a flat out amateur. He's a gentleman driver, pays his own way does it for fun. A silver driver is kind of like the catch-all box for people who aren't necessarily amateurs but are not good, are not considered top-level pros. And yeah. then gold is a top-level pro and platinum is like a, a Formula 1 driver, an LMP1 driver, a Formula E driver, DTM driver. Exactly, like, so, Tom, like Tom Christensen, for example. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. So if I had won that Italian GT championship, I would have been upgraded most likely upgraded from a bronze amateur to a silver non-pro. And uh, no one would have wanted me because in pretty much every GT racing championship, you need an amateur in the car. You need a bronze driver. And uh, some of the teams are often looking for the fastest amateur driver they can find. And at the time, I was one of the fastest. So that's why Kessel gave me an opportunity. Yes, I still had to find a lot of money. Um, but they gave me the opportunity to, or an offer to, to race in Blancpain GT. Um, okay. Yeah. So that's, that's, that was 2016. And is that a stipulation by the FIA that there has to be a bronze driver amongst the three guys in the car? Is that the idea or? It depends on the category. So Ah, if you're in a pro-am car, then you have to, you have to have a bronze. If you're in an am car, then all three drivers have to be bronze. If you're in a pro car, um, then there's no requirements, but you you probably need three pros in the car to stand a chance. If Um, you can get them. If you can get Mm. them. Um, Yeah, exactly. And then there's the new Silver Cup class, which is two or three years old now, uh, which requires a maximum of silver. Uh, So you can have three silvers in the car. That's what everyone else races with. Uh, But in our case, we had two silvers and one bronze. And in 2015, you were racing with Bonaldi, was it so? Yes, Bonaldi is the team that I broke my leg with, and they're the team that I race Italian GT with. In the end, ah, okay, yeah. Um, the guy who runs it, Marco Bielli, and I became very close. So 
he he gave me a lot of leeway when it came to finding the money and delaying the invoices. Um, so yes. maximum yeah. maximum respect to him and credit. Yeah, uh, amazing, exactly. And, yeah. and after all, after all that happened, so so in twenty fifteen, you raced for Banaldi in the Italian GT Championship GT Cup in the Lamborghini, Lamborghini Gallardo. That was a V ten, and then you also raced in the Super Trofeo, which in 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 English is Super Trophy. And that was that was as a, in the Gallardo as an amateur. 2016, you were in the Blancpain GT Series Sprint Cup, the also the um, International GT Open, um, and then you also there's a reference to uh, you were first in Gulf 12 Hours as a gentleman for Kessel, was it so? Yes, in, tw- um, in 2016. Yeah, yeah. So 2016 was started incredibly difficult. Uh, I didn't. I mean, in, in so. We entered the Blancpain Endurance Series, um, and in the first round, I didn't drive because the engine failed. In the second round, I didn't drive because the clutch failed. My fault. Uh, in the third round was Paul Ricard. We had um, major issues with uh, well, a number of things and um, didn't finish. But that was the first time I actually drove a GD3 in a race. Um, so that was halfway through the season. I'd already spent all my sponsorship money and I'd only done a few laps and had a DNF. <sighs> so then my sponsor pulled out, my co-drivers pulled out and for spa 24 hours, which was my main target that year, I had no seat. And that was the first time that my family had to come forward and help me. So they bailed me ah, out okay. in, a, in a big way. Yeah. Um, and I did the race with the Bentley and that was a disaster. All three of my co-drivers crashed. Um, and then I had nothing, so I came back to South Africa, um, just had no idea what to do next because I had no sponsorship now. I had no, my relationship with Kessel was not good. Um, ah, okay, yeah. Not because we didn't like each other, it's just my co-drivers um, created a nuclear bomb within our lineup, so the atmosphere was not good. Um, and then at the last minute, one of the co-drivers, his name is Stephen Earl, the doc, who I still coach to this day, another unbelievable person and another point in my career where I was lucky. He said, okay, let me do some races with David. We'll race in the amateur category. We need two bronze drivers. He can be my fast bronze. So we did two. We did a Blancpain sprint race in Budapest, Hungary, which we won. Then we did the International GT Open, which we won. And then my relationship with Kessel had sort of reignited itself and they offered to... Let me race for free in the Gulf 12 hour, uh, which we won. And the teammates that I won the Gulf 12 hour with are the teammates that I went into 2017 with. Um, okay. And where was the Gulf 12 hour? Sorry, where was that event? It's exactly? in Abu Dhabi. It's in Abu Dhabi. Ah, okay. At the F1 yeah. track, yeah. That must have been an experience. Oh, yeah, it's fun. It's, uh, I'm doing it yeah. again this year. I've won it twice, um, and I'll go again this year. And this year, it's, it's incredibly awesome because i will uh i'll be sharing a team with valentino rossi so he will be in the car next to me and uh he is my racing hero he's above every other racing driver i can think of and um i'm i'm incredibly nervous to to meet him um and he's I, the motor motor gp driver isn't he sorry yeah uh, yeah valentino yeah. rossi is uh <laughs> he, he's one of the greatest of all time in all forms of motorsport and uh, my first my very first karting helmet um i got his autograph uh, well through someone else someone took my helmet with them got his autograph i still have that helmet 
I still have his autograph. It's fading fast. Um, but so I don't clean it <laughs> because I no, no, of course not. No, no. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I get to meet him properly and I mean, that will cool. be just, uh, unreal for me. And there was something in the news recently about him and Hamilton switching positions in December. Was it so? Yeah, did that, I read that, that actually happens like two days before the Abu Dhabi race. So the oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. So and boom. and the Abu Dhabi, the twelve hours. That was your first time there, and you, your team won, was it so? Uh yeah. But to be honest with you, the Gulf twelve hour. Um, I mean, I'm happy that we won it, but uh, it's not. Uh, it's it's not necessarily that bigger deal to be honest um, it's it's a race where yeah. the teams use it as a way to introduce um gentlemen drivers to their team to their cars to gd3 racing so that you can prepare for the next season and um, yeah the atmosphere is very relaxed very fun um but it was an important race for me it was yeah, uh, indeed indeed it, it helped me get my seat for 2017 and then in 2017 you were first in the blancpain gt series endurance cup as an amateur and then in you were also first in the Blancpain GT Series Sprint, wasn't it so? Yeah, um, it was a phenomenal season. Uh, I yeah. basically, I think I won almost everything I entered. So, very good, very good year. Um, not sure if I'll repeat that. That was the year that I went to Fiorano to uh, receive the award for being a successful Ferrari driver. Just Indeed. by the way, um, I was never, I still am not, I'm not a factory driver. Um, no, no, just, no, no. I just race exclusively. Not yet. <laughs> Not <Yeah>. yet. <laughs> I, I try every angle, but they keep reminding me that I'm a bit old, too old. Uh, but I keep trying. I keep trying. Wow, wow. If if well, if you're if you're too old, David, David, there's no harm. There's no hope for me at all. Um, <laughs> and in 2017, the 2017 season, you were driving the Ferrari, the the 458. Was it so? I was driving the, both the 458 and the 488. So in endurance, ah, okay. I was racing the 488, and in sprint, I was driving the 458. And uh, okay, oh man, both cars are beautiful to drive, but that 458, Indeed. the engine, the the handling, just it feels very much like a race car. Yeah, and I noticed I noted from your video uh, the details, the differences between the two, and it's something I made notes about. I wanted to talk about later. And then in 2018, you were second. Um, you did a video recently about uh, Suzuka. In the Suzuka 10 hours in the Pro-Am Cup, uh, you were second and you, you drove for, was it Hub Auto Corsa? That's another correct. team, yes. was it so? Yes, correct. Uh, I was racing for Hub Auto um, and um, yeah, I got a call at the last minute there. Um, it was a coincidence, it was through a friend called Nick Foster who was going to be my teammate and yeah. um, we headed over there. We both got pole position in our qualifying runs. Car was very fast. Team makes a very, very, very fast qualifying car. Um, but in the race, we had a failure with the fuel pump, so our pit stops were delayed, and uh, we ended up finishing second. So it was a bit frustrating because we started pole position overall. You know, our target was therefore to try and win it overall. Um, but this pit stop issue car was costing us 10 to 15 seconds per pit stop. Yeah. And in GT racing, you are literally fighting for tenths of a second for multiple hours of a race and uh you just can't make that back so and the end, uh, p2 was cool um probably one of my favorite experiences as a gt driver or i mean as a racing driver because we're racing at suzuka and suzuka is legendary and racing in japan is legendary and i don't know if i'd ever go back because i don't have any clear opportunities to get there mm. um so i just treasure that that race because it was it was special yeah 
And there's a story from your chat with um, with Zach, which I enjoyed. That you you began as bronze and you became silver, and you wanted to race at the 24 Hours of Spa as a pro amateur. And then uh, Michele Rinaldi said, if you race in the GT Open at Spa in 2018, and which was a month before the 24 Hours of Spa, you had if you if you race there, you get pole, the fastest lap, and lead the race. He'll consider you for the 24 hours, and then you got you got P1 overall, and you also got a a, a GT3 lap record which you held for a year, wasn't it so? Uh yeah. So I at the beginning of 2018 I had no opportunities because I was eventually upgraded to a silver driver, um, and no one wants a bronze driver that's just been upgraded to silver. They rather find a silver driver who's got experience, right? I mean that's obvious. Exactly. Um, yeah. So. I had zero opportunities. Um, I read a news article somewhere about this team called Ronaldi Racing that was still searching for a driver. I cold emailed him. I was in Germany at the time. I then drove to his uh, offices, waited in the the waiting room for about an hour for him to meet me. He said, okay, uh, come do a test. Um, if you do well at the test, then maybe we can do something. Um, yeah. Did the test, did well. He offered me a seat in the GT Open with one of his co-drivers. Um, but I really wanted to race at Spa again because the prior year in 2017, we won Spa 24 as amateurs. And I wanted to prove that I could do it again uh, in a pro-am lineup as a sort of silver driver. Yeah. He said, you're not fast enough, buddy. Um, we're going to find another a more qualified gold driver. I said, just give me the chance. He says, I can't. My customers want a more qualified driver in the car. I said, okay. Uh, I didn't accept that. So I kept pushing and kept pushing him. And he said, okay, fine. Yeah. Here's the, here's what you need to do. Okay. Knowing that this was impossible, by the way. Uh, he said, okay, we're racing GT open at spa a month before the spa 24. Um, you need to get pole position. You need to get the fastest lap. You need to lead the race. And if you do that, I'll consider you for the the seat in the 24-hour. Yeah. So there was no guarantees. I said, uh, okay. Now, keep in mind, I wasn't a very good qualifier my whole life. Um, even for that Rotax Max World Finals, when I finished sixth and was fighting for the win, I qualified 32nd. So not a good start. Um, but anyway, went to this, this, this race in Spa. Um, we were on the Michelin tire in the GD3s. I had a very good feeling on the Friday practice. Woke up Saturday morning with, and um, track conditions were perfect for lap records. And um, yeah, after my first lap, I was already P1 overall. I thought he was joking. I thought the other guys hadn't done a lap yet. And then the next lap, I improved. He said, you're still P1. And by the end, I got the pole position. Um, and I didn't know that I'd beaten the lap record. Uh, I did a two minutes, 15.8, which was very, very, very fast. It felt yeah. fast. Uh, I was shaking afterwards. I was quite emotional as well. Cause I never believed that I could actually do a pole position against pro drivers. Um, yeah. and what happened? Uh, uh, then later they told me you broke the lap record. So that was just, that was cool. Um, but I still, Unbelievable, yeah. it was, that was very cool. Cause you know, spa is a special place and, uh, yeah. everyone wants to be fast at spa. So, to hold that lap record was quite special. And um, a couple of weeks later, he phoned me and he said, um, you'll be racing in the Pro-Am car and he's going to pay me to do it. So 
he put like this cherry on top, which was quite surreal yeah. to be honest. Cause I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't asking to be paid or anything. I was just happy to race at Spa 24 for free. And that was my first race as a paid racing driver. So, okay. So was, in the GT open, I'm sorry, in the GT yeah. open the month before, did you have to pay for yourself? I was racing for free. Oh, you're racing for free. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. So first you start as a guy who has to bring sponsorship. You have to bring money. If you're good enough, then maybe they'll let you race for free because the other driver fills, pays for the whole thing. Okay. okay. And then if yeah. you're really good and you're really professional, then then they'll pay you. Um, okay. okay. It's, it's a long process. And it's there's no return on the investment, by the way. <laughs> no, um, no in the of end, course you, not. No. You kind of don't make your money back, but it's nice to race, to get paid to race. So... So in the GT Open, so in a month before the 24 hours of Spa, uh, Michele Renandli gave you a chance and basically they provide everything. You turn up for free. You basically, you drive the car for free. And then because you because you achieved what you did, you, you a month later, you were also in the Spa 24 hours and you got paid, which was your first time to be paid, which was cool. Yeah. And we ended up winning it. So I won Spa 24 Indeed. two times in a row. So I justified the... Uh, I justified the risk that Michele took on me. And he he kept yeah. reminding me that it, he was taking a risk. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. Say, David, this is a yeah. big risk for me. If you mess up, my customers will be very upset. Yeah. Uh, but in the end, I'm, I like to believe that I made the difference in the car. So. Yeah, yeah. And it also made a big difference, obviously, in terms of your career. Yes, yes, yes. Because... That was last year. Now this year, I'm a full-time paid racing driver. And I think it was born out of that performance at Spa. Indeed. So, and currently now, this is from my notes. And I know you you explained it earlier. And if you wouldn't mind, explain it again for for, 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 for us noobs and, and me especially. Now, currently you're in the Blancpain GT Series Sprint and Endurance Cup in the European Championship. You're also in the Inter Intercontinental GT Challenge the Italian GT Championship, am I right? And then yeah. the Nations Cup. So will you explain those? How do, how do they all uh, lay out together? And how, how, does, how does it work in, in terms of scheduling, if you know what I mean? Um, so the scheduling is a nightmare. So you, you kind yeah. of choose a, a priority championship. So usually if you offer a seat in either ELMS or Blancpain GT, um, yeah. those become your priority. Um, but... To do so, the Blanc, the, the GT World Challenge is only 10 races a year, um, and you can't really survive of 10 races a year. So, you try to fill your calendar with as many races as possible. Now, it's not a case of, oh, I'll just phone a team and they'll just give me some racing opportunities. It's it's a, quite a bit more complicated. Yeah. So, you, you kind of look at the championships around the world or around Europe, and you see if there's a if there's any interest for you to be in that car or if you can convince your existing team why you should race in certain races on top of the GT World Challenge. Um, so the Italian GT, for example, that was a one-off event that we entered. They have a whole championship. We only entered one event so that my two teammates could prepare for the Nations Cup. So uh, that okay. was a yeah. bonus for me there. Then I also did some races in the Creventic Hancock 24-hour series um, and that was with the same, um, same team, but different drivers. Uh, and those were sort of extra races, if you will. Cause again, yeah. my, my focus was the Blancpain 
GT World Challenge. Yes. Um, and then the ELMS stuff came as a bonus because the, the, the driver in that car decided not to finish the season and they wanted a fast driver in the car to replace him. So I got the call. And that was because of my existing relationship with Kessel. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's often your season is only determined sort of in January, February, March of, of the year that you'll be racing. So at least in January and February, you don't do any racing unless you race in America or Asia. I don't really have any strong links there, so I don't race there. So you're jobless for two months and then testing starts in uh, March, April. Yeah. Um, but yeah, generally what you try to do is you try to nail down a championship, a full season championship. Um, and the priority is GT World Challenge or European Le Mans Series. And then you have, if you can't get a seat there, because it's not easy, then you try to get a seat in GT Open. Um, if you can't get a seat in GT Open, then you look at the national series like uh, the ADAC GT Masters, which is yes. the, that's the German championship or yes. Italian GT or the British GT. Um, but all of this comes down to the relationship that you have with the person who's going to pay for that racing. And the person who pays for that racing is the gentleman driver. So in my case, my gentleman driver is a driver called Renat Salikov. He's my age, very successful guy from Russia. Um, and we work together to plan our season. Um, I'm his pro, if you will. So yeah. we always want to race in the GT World Challenge, the Blancpain series. So that's always a priority. And then we kind of look to see if we can add on some races above that, two or three races. Um, and then once that's down, once that's nailed, then I will speak to Rinaldi about me doing other races for them in separate championships races like vln which is the Nordschleife racing yeah mm -hmm. um, the hankook 24 hour series um and then whatever else we could find uh on top of that yeah and is this all, sorry these various events is this always in the ferrari for rinaldi or are you driving different different brands as well or um no it's always with ferrari yeah uh, okay. so i try look I, I still have the unrealistic dream to become, to work for Ferrari officially one day. So yeah, one of my strategies is to stick with Ferrari racing cars throughout the season. Cause then you, at every race I'm interacting with uh, Ferrari engineers at every single race. Yeah. Uh, and I just hope that one day I leave a big enough impression that they say, Hey Dave, do you want to come test uh, maybe uh, the new, a new ABS system or a new traction control system or a new aero package and, Maybe their factory drivers aren't available, but they know me very well. So they say, okay, well, David can do it for us. He has a lot of experience. So that's my, uh, that's, that's my loose plan to somehow get my way into Maranello. Yeah. Um, somehow. Yeah. So if I'm racing exclusively with Ferraris throughout the year, um, then I get to interact with the engineers. Uh, and that's, that's kind of my plan. Yeah. And obviously if you know, if you know the car, you're familiar with the car, and with the several tracks that it races on, obviously it keeps you keep gives you that competitive edge, I guess. Yes, I get. I have I know the Ferrari forty eight GD three very intimately now, and um, yeah, indeed. I have already pointed out some some things to the the engineers like that they could improve upon, and they've used my advice for those instances. Um, and it's just because I drive them every weekend, almost almost every weekend. So yeah, it's a yeah. huge benefit. I know. 
for example, if we need to make if if the problem that we have is related to suspension or damping or the diff or uh, the 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 compound of the brake pad, because I've done a lot of the testing with brake pads. Even um, I've driven the Ferrari on all kinds of tires now. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a big benefit. Um, I know in every gear, which which is the ideal point in the revs to change gear, you know. Yeah. Um, so th- those things help a lot. They help a lot. Yeah, yeah. And did you tell when you were talking with Zach? Did you tell? Did you say to Zach now from my notes here that after the Ferrari Awards in in Fiorino in 2019, that you decided to to call it quits, sort of, as you had moved to, to silver, and then you had read an article that that. Uh, that Rinaldi needed a racing driver for for this year's season, or was it so? Or did did I did I misread that? Correct. That's correct. Yeah. In 2018, the Ferrari Awards was in February or March. I think it was in March. Yeah. And usually by March, if you don't have a seat, uh, you're out. Um, and all the teams I'd spoken to weren't interested. They didn't need me. Um, and I'd actually made a, you know, I'd made a big life decision to to leave South Africa to move to. Europe slash UK um, yeah. pursue this thing. And I was already without a drive after one year. So I figured I either move back to South Africa or I do some karting for fun um, and focus on my business again, you know, another replay. Um, and then that was, that was already my decision at those awards. Uh, I hadn't given up. I just kind of, <laughs> I'd run out of, I'd run out of doors to knock on. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and then the following day, um, I'd read this article about Rinaldi um, and decided to, to do a Hail Mary. And it was a Hail Mary because I didn't have their contact details. So I found them on Facebook and I sent a private message on Facebook. Um, and their secretary, no, not their secretary, uh, their logistics and team manager replied. I mean, it was yeah. so random. It was so random. Um, yeah. And she gave me the number or no, she gave me the email address of Michele. Now it turns out Michele doesn't like email. He never replies. I've known him now <laughs> very well. I see him every week for the last two years. And uh, if he's not interested in you, he just simply doesn't reply. Um, yeah. And for two days, I didn't hear from him. And then I got an SMS, an SMS. I didn't get a WhatsApp. I got an SMS from him <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, to say, uh, okay, um, I maybe have something for you. And then yeah. – just on that, I was like, I'm, I can't let this die. I said, I'm in Germany. I'll drive to you. He's like, no, no, it's not necessary. And I just drove five hours the next morning um, to go meet him. And I don't know if that left an impression, but yeah. And that's when you stood in the lobby for an hour waiting for him to come out, was it so? Correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So sorry, I, I said I said after the, the awards in 20, uh, 2019, you decided to call it quits, but that was in early uh, 2018. Yes, uh, my, mis- my, mis- my, my mistake. So, and then uh, as a driver yourself, you 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 spoke about being a kind of a, a, a motorsport motorsport addict through and through, and also a, a, a fan. You're a fan before you you you're a racing driver, and I guess that's always been the case with you. Is it so? Uh, yeah, I still am a fan before I'm a racing driver. I know all the drivers' yeah. names. Uh, when I'm home, I watch racing on TV in, on top of everything else. Um, when I'm at the racetrack, I watch I watch junior karting events between my races. Um, I there's always racing on somewhere in my life. Um, I visit the autosport website a hundred times a day. 
Um, I have a, a list of people I follow on Twitter for motorsport. Um, I'm a, uh, I, I'm rabid. Uh, I, <laughs> I can't yeah. get enough. It's probably like me. It's probably like me and following what's happening in in sim racing, and in this case, you're doing both. So, I yeah, I even, where, I even watch sim racing. Yeah, uh, oh well, at, at racetrack, there's actually a lot of waiting time. You have to just sit around and wait. Um, Indeed, yeah. So, because between practice and your debrief, there's maybe two, three hours. Sometimes, I mean, in the ELMS, it's the worst schedule in the world. Uh, you you arrive at nine a.m. to do seven laps of practice at 10 a.m. And then that's it for Friday. That's it. Ah, gee. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you do seven laps on Friday. Well, I mean, how else do you fill your time? You know, so I watch some racing when I'm at the track as well. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And you talked about, you mentioned, and I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of an extension of what you talked about with Zach in the way that you said you you always had good, good co-drivers relative to your category and, and how it was not easy to find pros who can who can dominate which i can which i can appreciate and and you mentioned that uh Mikko Bortolotti and and Engelhart dominated in 2018 and then i remembered there was the side note of them being disqualified i think i think somebody had had swallowed a a, a memory card or something like yep. that but yeah. um, <laughs> i i that was in the back of my my mind for some reason and then i want i wanted to talk about how your 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 preparation i'm i'm fascinated by and i have my notes here if you'll excuse me. So you talked about, you said that now, and something which I can appreciate even on a sim racing level, how the difficulty in circuit racing is perfection and you're, you're obsessive about learning tracks and you, you said you don't consider yourself the most talented driver, but you work hard. And then you, if you're preparing for the race, you'll begin by watching an onboard of a, let's say a GT500, GT3 or F1, and then you'll make notes. And then you'll open up Google Maps and you'll you'll trace the track using Adobe Illustrator to create vectors, and then you'll kind of it's a form of medit meditation. So explain that concept to me, because 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 I I found that fascinating. And obviously you you you're you're a kind of a interface designer by trade, if if I if if you will. So so explain that concept. Where where did that idea come to to open up Google Maps and then and then trace them out with vectors is that a form of learning the straights versus the curves and so on or what's your what's your kind of thought process there um it came from karting because um where i grew up in cape town we only had one karting track so i spent the entire year for ugh, three or four years just driving one track um besides the tracks i played on gran turismo and um yeah. and so on so when I used to go to a new track in the early days of karting, I would struggle so much to learn the track because um, I just had no experience of driving a different racetrack. Um, so I had to figure out a way to to prepare how to do laps without doing laps. Um, and and back, yeah, of course, of course, yeah. yeah. So mm -hmm. back then, uh, no one would do the kind of preparation I did for karting. Um, but I had a real breakthrough when I did that world final uh, in 2007 because... I googled the map, uh, the track, which was a new track, and no one had raced there before. Uh, so I googled the track. Uh, I turned out that I found the track on Google Maps, but it hadn't been uh, fully constructed yet. They just sort of, um, it was still muddy. It wasn't, uh, it hadn't been uh, surfaced yet. Yes. Uh, and I used that to trace it using uh, vectors, uh, and then printed that out, stuck it all over my house, 
uh, my apartment and, um, and then what happened? And then, uh, yeah, so I put it at eye level when I woke up in the morning uh, next to my bed, I put it in the cupboard, put it in the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Then when when I went to the track, uh, I'd done so many mental laps around there that it felt like I'd done a thousand laps, um, in practice. But when I did my first lap around there, it felt like I'd done 10,000 laps already. Um, so then I just took that further. And uh, these days, because I race at tracks that exist on simulators, it makes it much easier. Yeah. Uh, but now I get someone else to do the vectors for me because uh, they do it in much more detail, much more detail. And I have yeah. very, very but nice you still, but, but you still use the same concept, though, even though even though like you started because the, the karting track wasn't in the same, so you had to kind of trace it out to learn it beforehand because you'd know other way to drive to test it in a way but you're still using this process are you yeah i'm a, i'm obsessed with the process and uh yeah interesting spend, these days to be honest um i i don't use uh the simulator to actually learn the track in in acute detail anymore yeah yeah because the the sims don't get it 100% right so you don't no. want to you want to you don't want to excuse me you don't want to develop muscle memory for something that's one percent off because that can actually throw you off by quite a bit um of course yeah so what i do is i use the sim now for to prepare my technique or to refine my technique to to refine my motor actions to refine how my ankle moves under braking to refine how my my knee moves uh under acceleration you know um those kinds of things i develop the muscle memory using the simulator but I still prepare just as much as before if I'm given the time. Like if you're racing every week, uh, it becomes very, very, very difficult to prepare to the level that I used to um, because there's just no time. Uh, you don't you're have, just traveling all the time, basically. Yeah, you yeah. don't have time to breathe. Um, so, But the benefit there is you're driving every weekend. So you get the benefit of knowing the car very well. So the variable of the track – and we look, we, we visit the same tracks over and over – um, Indeed, that yeah. variable diminishes the unknowns. You, what you're trying to do is, when you arrive at somewhere new, you have to reduce the unknowns as much as you can. And one of those things is is tracing the track or going onto Google Maps and or doing the onboard videos. Yeah, um, I just know a lot of drivers don't do that. Um, some of them are lazy, and some uh, haven't been told. Some of them don't have the time. Some of them don't necessarily have the creativity. Um, I don't have the software <laughs> or they don't have the yeah. software, but you know, you can just, Indeed, yeah. you could yeah. just take screenshots on your phone of the track from Google that you can do. Yeah, that's true. Um, that is true. Yeah. And then look at it. Uh, but look, I'll be straight up honest. Every time people ask me this, I know, I know I'm not the fastest driver in the world. Um, yeah. and I have to make up for it in other ways. So I, I don't necessarily have the, the acute talent that other guys have, but you know, racing is not just about your ability to take one corner fast. There's a, no. there's a whole thing around it. Um, exactly. Dedication, planning, financing, sponsorships. It's kind of, it's the whole deal, basically, isn't it? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But even just, I mean, just in terms of the driving is understanding all the elements. I didn't, I never used to realize how technical driving was. Um, Indeed. Even, yeah. even when I took it seriously when I was younger. Um mm. I've just come to realize more and more that there there is an art form to this that you can work on and perfect to become absolutely a, a better absolutely. racing driver, even if you yeah. don't necessarily have that ungodly natural talent, you know. Yeah, 
And something you said, and it kind of it 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 got me thinking about even my own approach to sim racing. And you do coaching as well, which we'll talk about later. But you talked about you getting on a sim and you do as many laps as you can, but you just don't go around and round like like I admit to trying to trying to do in the Nordschleife to try and learn the Nordschleife in a way which seems kind of sort of impossible. And then from the onboard, you'll try and find a car that's similar in terms of gear ratios and feeling and you create a program for yourself. And then you have 90 minute sessions broken, you know, 90 minutes practice sessions broken up. So you're very kind of, you're very deliberate about that. And then you said you'll start with, for example, three laps on all tires and then you'll, you'll pit, you'll box, as you said, and then you'll, you'll, you'll switch to super, super stickies and then do two more laps and you, you have your, you have a baseline so you, how you're kind of mentally preparing for, for getting ready for an event. And then you would do that every morning for two weeks to create your baseline. And then, and then every day you're thinking about the track like you did back in the day, looking at the um, picture of the karting track on the wall. So I found that kind of, um, I, I found the whole process kind of fascinating, you know? Yeah, you got to, well, the, the premise is this, is um, when you get to a racetrack in real life and you have people around you that you have to deliver, um, there's a, a, pres- a professional approach, there's a program, there's a timetable, there's, you know, there's a run plan. Um, so how do you bring that home? So pretend that your simulator is the car and and you're at a racetrack, then run to a program. And the, the worst thing that you can do in terms of improving as a driver is to do mindless laps. That's just mm. going over and over and over. So you have to, the practice has to be deliberate. You have to have a, some kind of, some kind of plan. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, my baseline testing, uh, I don't, I no longer do it every day. I just do it like maybe once a week where I'll go to the same track, same car, same tires, uh, mm. five lap run. Where am I? Okay. This is where I am. Um, and that, that just helps. It, it, you know, there's so many layers to to how I can explain this. It's very difficult to articulate. But um, once you do enough laps of something and that becomes second nature, the ability to drive, then your ultimate speed, I believe, uh, is a, an emotional and mental game. So, Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. If I, I know how to yeah. get a car around a corner, um, but what determines my ultimate performance is how I feel on the day uh, emotionally. So... My focus yeah. these days is kind of I'm using the simulator more and more to identify how I'm feeling and then trying to fix that or not fix it, but just understand it and, and work with my emotions. Um, so the, the sim is helping me identify those emotions and when I'm stressed, when I'm re- too relaxed or whatever. Um, so that when I get to the racetrack in real life, uh, I'm, in, I'm more in tune. I'm more mindful of, of how I'm feeling and, uh, depending on how I'm feeling is, is often a determination of how I perform. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And then you talked about when you arrive at a, at a race, uh, which well, a good point you made with Zach, that when you arrive at a race, you're not thinking about overall pole. You're, ta- you're, you're, you're thinking about pole in your own category and that's the way you should be doing, isn't it? So absolutely. You have to, uh, yeah. Yeah. You have to focus on your own race. Um, even though there's pro cars around you, factory drivers, you want to beat them. Beating them, trust me, has no bearing on my career, sadly. Um, yeah. But winning my class does. So you have to shut out all the other stuff. And even if you're qualifying, let's say there's 60 cars on the grid and you qualify 30th. If you pole position in your class, 
because the guy other guy's 30 seconds then that that's all that matters because yeah, exactly. you, you need to win the, your race not other people's yeah. race yeah and especially in in events like Le Mans of course where it's very it's very focused on on categories isn't it so and indeed indeed uh, VLN and, and so on and then you you had a video which was the title of the video was when things don't didn't didn't go as planned and you talked about racing at Spa and Pirelli versus Hancock and you had a very dangerous moment which i believe was the start of a puncture and then back to your your 2018 GT Open getting your 215.8 um and i watched you driving Eau Rouge now what's it like to drive across Eau Rouge at that speed because it looks from the onboard it looks very bumpy what does it feel like to to like to 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 pedal to the metal in 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 6 or 7 gear to, to cross or rouge i mean you know without lifting what's that what's what's that like it's uh it's unbelievable honestly <laughs> yeah um it's so difficult to explain but uh there's a lot of bumps in the middle and your car flexes a lot through there on the suspension it loads up a lot on the left rear which yeah which um unloads the front uh of the car and, and gets like this hopping action and um, if you hop in the wrong way, basically, you're going to land up in the wall. Uh, and yeah. it takes a long time to build up the confidence to try to take Eau Rouge flat. Uh, and it's cool because GD3s are still in this this window where Eau Rouge is very much a challenging corner. You know, if you do, mm-hmm. if you go through there in a Formula 3 car, it's easy flat. If you go through there in a Formula 1 car, it's easy flat. But GD3, it's still in a window which makes it an incredibly challenging corner that you cannot take for granted. There's massive accidents there every year in GD3s. Yeah, that's what you said in the video, yeah. Yeah, you have to respect that corner. Every time I get there, so I'm driving down towards Eau Rouge, I think to myself, please, 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 not this time. Um, yeah, that's what I was thinking, yeah. Because mm. it's it's tough, man. And uh, <laughs> yeah. When you get out on the top, uh, the feeling is, I mean, you're not relieved or anything that you, you're satisfied of the, cause it's such an incredible corner. You feel this massive compression, then this, then this crazy unloading of weight. And then again, like a landing and a compression and you have yeah. to get your steering just perfect, uh, to minimize any of the scrubbing of speed through there. And you have mm. to hit the apexes perfectly. And the other thing is it happens so quickly. Like before you know it, you've gone through and you've come out the other end. Um, yeah. But in that, I don't know how long it takes. I need to time it. But let's just say one or two seconds or three seconds. Um, it's probably longer. Let's say it's five seconds. It feels like a, a tenth of a second. Um, yeah, and exactly, you, yeah. it's all about how you go go in. It's about the turning point to the uh, when you turn right for the first time. Um, yeah. uh, which part of the curb you're touching through the right-hander. Uh, and, oh, man, at night, if you do that thing at night... Uh, I cannot imagine it. I cannot imagine it. It's it's inc- it's just the most incredible feeling, and you get yeah. in the twenty four hours at night. You do a double stint, which is uh, um, it's about forty five laps, sixty laps, not sixty, about forty five, fifty laps. And oh my god! <laughs> it's the but is it a, is it a scary every time though? I mean, because yes, yes, you never yes. know what's going to happen. Anything can happen. I'd, and you do 45 laps, anything can happen during any of those laps, isn't, isn't it so? The whole track of Spa is scary. Um, everyone yeah, talks about Eau Rouge, yeah. but wait till you go through Blanchemar flat for the first time. I mean, yeah. Blanchemar is another one which catches people out. Yeah. And uh, it's another terrifying corner. And at night, you can't see Blanchemar. You can't see it. You only see it no, when you turn. Of course it. not, no. 
Um, yeah. Whereas Oruj, you, you drive towards it and you can see up the hill. Uh, yes. Blanche, your lights are pointing straight, but the corner goes left. Yes. So you exactly. use different track markers to turn in. Um, exactly. But yeah, Oruj is... It's an incredible corner. Incredible. So it's, it's something else. And then you had a video at Mugello and you were racing for uh, Wachenspiegel Team Monschau, uh, which was part of, uh, which is via Rinaldi. And I noticed there was, there was a lot of traffic. There was you in, a, in the Ferrari. And then there was a lot of, uh, I noticed from a lot of videos, of course, you, like you said, you're doing many different events. There's a lot of like GT4 cars, like there might be a, an Aston Martin GT4, there might be a Ginetta, there's a lot of traffic. And then you talked about, you were driving, um, driving behind, uh, at the, in this particular video of Magello, you were driving behind uh, Daniel Kielwitz, who's like a, like a GT Masters champion and a Nordschleifer Nord specialist. And like somebody, like that fa fascinates me of somebody who in, the, who in the real world is like a Nordschleifer specialist. And here's me like at home in, in, my, <laughs> office, up in my office chair leaning back and trying to appreciate, like, like I can approach Eau Rouge in the same, but of course I don't get the feeling, the feeling of speed. I don't get the G forces. I don't get the motion or the elevation. And the same for Nord, Nord Slifer. I mean, there's laser scan Nord Slifer now in in um in in our factor two. And in terms of simulations, you can take your pick. But like you're talking about somebody like Daniel Kailowitz, who's who's like a Nord Slifer specialist that in the real world. Like that fascinates me completely. Yeah, and uh, Daniel's so chilled. He, it's almost like he couldn't be bothered. Um, but yeah, he's he's brilliant. His yeah. his couldn't be bothered attitude, um, I think, is one of the reasons why he's so quick uh, in in uh, in everything he drives and at the Nordschleife because he's it doesn't scare him. It really doesn't scare him. So he's got something I don't. He's he's unplugged the fear factor. <laughs> he must have done. He maybe maybe he has disconnected something in his brain. Yeah, <laughs> fascinating. He's, he's fascinating. a good guy. He's a really nice yeah. guy. Um, yeah. We'll be racing together, not in the same car, but uh, same team um, in South Africa at the end of this month in the Kailami Nine Hour. So, ah, okay. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. So and Kailami is a track that's kind of coming back. It's coming to um, one of the. I think. I think. Who is it? Um, is it? Well, Race Room or R Factor 2 is bringing it. Is it so? I can't remember. Uh, Assetto Corsa. Assetto Corsa. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Assetto Corsa Competizione is yes. bringing Kailami. Excuse me. Indeed. Indeed. Now, you talked about your, your, your... We mentioned... We just mentioned Mugello and Suzuka and those among you. You have, you have three favorite tracks. Uh, Mugello, Suzuka and Imola. So, can you explain why is that so? Is that from the tracks that were in... Uh, Gran Turismo when you were younger or is it the feeling of the tracks or what is it about them that you like so much? Um, so Imola is the, my number one because it's so technical yep. and um, I mean Indeed, what a place yeah. and very fast as well even with the chicanes. I mean you you, you have to really get those chicanes nice and precise. Um, I've only driven there two or three times but uh, beautiful racetrack, just beautiful. I, would, I wish I could race there every year. Um and it's got gradients, it's got everything. Very difficult to overtake, um, very difficult to put a lap together. Then uh, Mugello, because it's very fast and flowing. Um, yeah. Also, beautiful part of Italy. Um, not easy to get right. Some people call it boring because, I mean, if you look at the track map, it looks like the corners are repeated. Um, but mm. but there's details there. Um, and to be honest with you, Mugello may 
may one day slip out of my top three, but for now it's still there. And and Suzuka, because if you go off at Suzuka, uh, you hit a wall. <laughs> and 130R, or as they say, R130, is still an incredibly tough, tough corner in GD3. Big crashes there if you get it wrong. Um, easy flat in Formula 1. It is not flat in a GD3 car. Um, as Obviously, the S's, if you get those right, so it's a beautiful feeling at Suzuka. So it's very fast-flowing circuit, very much a driver's track, um, very challenging. Um, and then, yeah, then there's the rest. Um, I'm trying to think of other tracks that obviously I like Spa. It's not my favorite, but I like it a lot. Mm. Um, I actually also like Abu Dhabi because it's very technical. I like technical tracks, um, even though I struggle at them. I do like them a lot. I tend I got to do- that. In- yeah, I sorry, I got that impression, and maybe that's why you're so fascinated by Magella, Suzuka, and Imola, just as examples right now. Yeah. Yeah. So I. Because of my driving style um, and the way that I brake, uh, I tend to do better at high-speed tracks where you can blend the the braking and the throttle. And I struggle at slow-speed tracks where you have to stop the car, get it turned, and then get on the power. Um, ah, okay. Yeah, I, I have a – my natural style of driving is to carry speed through the apex of a corner. And in GT3 racing, that's sort of not what you want. You want to stop the car, turn it, and then get going as quickly as possible. But uh, – I carry too much speed um, in the apex, around the apex. So uh, high-speed tracks where that is beneficial um, suit me well. But slow-speed tracks like uh, Budapest or Misano or oh, Silverstone is another one I like, by the way. Silverstone I really enjoy. Quite technical as well, isn't it? Oh, very high speed though. Whoa. Yeah. Beautiful. I mean, wow. If you get the corners right there. <laughs> every sector has got something which is just magical so <laughs> i i love that track i love that track. quite different yeah and in terms of driving do, do you have a, a a preference for a sprint or endurance or uh, what about daytime versus night are you equal for both or how does it go for you generally um nighttime is my favorite really uh, yeah oh yeah because you're on your own basically that's what it feels like mm. um and it depends on the endurance race. I love Spa. Um, obviously, I still want to somehow get to Lamar. Sprint racing is cool because you flat out and it's high. It's very aggressive. Um, mm. But I mean, the Ferrari is a seven hundred thousand euro car. So, and the guys are not scared of bumping wheels and doors and wing mirrors and diffusers. So it can get expensive uh, for your gentleman driver, and you have to be very, very aware of that. Yeah. Um, so that's quite stressful, but uh, yeah, um, endurance racing is fun if you if you're in the rhythm, if you've got good teammates, if you are fit, if you're well nourished. Because um, when you're tired at an endurance race, it really becomes re- uh, hard work. I just mean not yeah. on like f- you don't become physically tired because it's not that physical, it, but it is exhausting. It's mentally exhausting, especially. Mm. Um, it's a concentration you need to keep up. Yeah, and, so, and yeah. your body. It, it at the end of the race it feels bruised you feel like whew, it's like stiff and tough and like you know it's it's yeah. tough um being so, tense for so, so long yeah yeah, yeah 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 so if you're not prepared mm. for that that can really suck it can be that you just want to get through it by the end um but if everything's going smoothly and it's fun um the thing is though it's sprint race weekends it's just so competitive uh so there's a, a lot of enjoyment on that side but they have their they both have their benefits, but I miss um, I miss uh, racing in sprint races more often. I wish I could do it more often. Okay, 
So it's mostly endurance events you've been doing then. Is it so or? Uh, both. I, I've mixed it. It's a, it's a big mixture this year. One hour yeah, stints. Okay. Uh, um, I've done a lot of one hour stints this year. That's endurance. Okay. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, something I wanted to ask you about was 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 tires and and of course this is the 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 there are variations in terms of how how tires are 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 modeled. You have the contact patch and so on. And you talked about, for example, how the Michelin tires like you could have uh, you could have two laps at a Porsche at Spa if they were heated, and how uh, Rover racing Porsches had much better traction on Barcelona. So if you talk about um, let's say Pirelli versus Michelin versus Hancock versus so on. Do you have a preference for tires, or what is it? What is it about tires that 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 you need to know? Because obviously, it's more it's more prev it's more pertinent in the real world, of course. But can you do you as a real driver over time? Do you learn to know or be aware of how different brands behave? Behave, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, the the tires. There's a there's a huge difference between the tires and how they mm. feel. This it's it's massive, um, but it's massive in like the most subtle way. Like if you have no experience, if I had sent you out on a Michelin in the GD3 and then brought you into box and then changed you to a Pirelli, you wouldn't you wouldn't know the difference at all. Um, and if you said that there was a difference, you'd be making it up. Your brain would be telling you <laughs> lies basically because it's it's very nuanced, but the, the the nuances in the end, if you know the details, are, are huge. And uh, for example, the Michelin tends to just feel more grippier. You can you can break and turn a lot more aggressively with the Michelin. You don't have to worry too much about wheel spin. Um, the Pirelli, you have to be very careful with uh, the angle or the approach that you take into a corner and how you load the tire going into a corner. Um, you don't want it to be sliding across the surface. It really punishes you for that. Yeah. Um, and then the the Hankook, I don't know. Just, I'm sorry to Hankook, but that thing feels like a brick. So <laughs> interesting, it, yeah. interesting, yeah. Because they, 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 sorry, they, Hankook do the tires for the DTM as a rule, or at least they have been for several yeah, years now. Yeah, but remember, it, it, I mean, for example, in the Pirellis, just as an example, we use a DH, yeah. uh, DHE, and we used to use a DHD, and Next year we would use the DH something two, DHD two or DHE two, and uh, yeah. these are different constructions. They have different ways of making the tire, and you can feel the difference. You will feel the difference. And uh, okay, so it depends. Like the Hankook DTM tire, it must be a good tire because it's it has to cope with DTM levels of of stress. Um, whereas the Hankook GT three tire. Uh, I know for a fact because they tell us that it's actually built of old technology and they have to finish making the, the batches before they upgrade to uh, a more modern specification. Um, okay. But it's uh, yeah, the, the Hankook tire feels, it has no feeling for me. I don't feel it very well. Um, the Michelin tire, everyone loves a Michelin tire. Everyone does. Um, a lot of people like the Dunlop tire. Um, and... And to be fast in a Pirelli tire takes a lot of experience with the Pirelli tire. Like a lot of people can jump into a Michelin car, Michelin tired car and be quick. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a lot more forgiving because it has so much grip at a lot of uh, angles. Um, but the Pirelli tire is like, it takes a lot of experience to exploit it to the maximum. 
And um, you can see a lot of guys who come who don't have Pirelli experience but are platinum ranked drivers uh, will struggle initially. They'll oh, ask interesting. They'll ask yeah. too much of the tire, especially on uh, corner entry. And um, yeah. and yeah, this can affect your it can it can affect your performance. But it just takes time. It takes time. And do you have a preference if you're a racing sprinter endurance in the Blancpain GT? Do you have a preference for what tire you would have, or, or if it's a case of you're going to an event and certain tires are specified, you go, "Oh no, this is not going to work out well for me." Yeah, yeah I know that if I'm going to race uh, in a Hankook race, I'm going to struggle in qualifying. Um, yeah. Uh, and honestly, I mean, the Michelin is just so fast. I mean, okay, here's an example. So that that lapped record I did at Spa was a 2.15.8 yes. on, on the Michelin. And then in the race, we were doing 2.17s. Um, so, but the Pirelli's um, Super Pole record, I think, is a 2.17.5 or 2.17.8. So two seconds yeah. slower. And in yeah. race pace, is a 2 minute 23, 2 minute 24. Oh, really? So if you can imagine a five-second delta between a 217 uh, with the Michelin race tire yeah. and a 223, so six seconds. It feels night and day. Um, yeah, it has to, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I speak with Pirelli a lot. We, we always tease them, by the way. Uh, we give them, we give them a, a tough time. Uh, yeah. But, 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 yeah, they, 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 I mean, look, they make a very... A very good tire. It's a safe tire. I mean, the Pirellis, more championships in the GT world use Pirellis than any other tires. So they have a lot of data, a lot of information. The tires they make are very good. Um, but ultimately, the Michelin, or at least the spec that I've driven, I don't know what spec it is. It's a S, they, they called SP something. Yeah. SP3 or I don't know what it is. Um, very quick and, and yeah. very fun to drive because it's so forgiving. So you... Your, your driving style is not as influential on your lap time as it is in a Pirelli. You know, if you abuse the tire with a Pirelli, you're just not going to get the lap time. And this is something you learn you learn with experience. Back to your um, trip to Italy, your dad paid 6,000 for you to go there and you'd be a mechanic. So um, when you were growing I mean, up in, in he, Cape Town... He didn't Town, have the 6,000. He paid for the, the flight. Was, ah, sorry. Yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah. Your dad, your, your dad, your dad paid for the flight. Sorry, my mistake. No, it's but, fine. Uh, yeah, did did you have a? Because I I talked with uh, uh, Niels from Huskenveld in the last episode, and and Niels Niels's father worked in the bank, so there was no no history of tinkering with cars or bikes at home. So how about you in Cape Town? Do you come from a mechanical family? Because uh, you you went yeah. you went to the karting race as a mechanic. So where did you get those skills from? Uh, I don't have the skills. <laughs> um, no, my dad discouraged me from being a racing driver. He couldn't. He didn't want to come to the racetrack either. Uh, yeah. He wanted my brother and I to learn how to code. Um, but uh, you know, we would watch racing on TV. My brother and I would watch bikes, and uh, specifically, we liked the black bike. <laughs> and uh, that's that's where it came from. Very very early on. Okay. Um, and then when we discovered, my dad drove. He's a very fast uh, driver, very, very, very good driver. Um, and he did a tiny bit of racing in his early twenties, but nothing remarkable. And um, when we were in the car when we were young, I used to love it when he drove fast. Um, yeah. And, and where we grew up in Cape Town, there's a lot of uh, good roads, windy roads, and he would give it the beans basically. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
but yeah, when I started racing, he, the, the guy who introduced us to karting actually started as my mechanic slash uh, teacher. His name was Claude. And yeah. Claude, who I still keep in touch with uh, to this day, um, he, he taught me how to change an engine. He taught me how to um, change tires and stuff. And then um, from there, my brother and I were self-sustaining, self self-sufficient, because my dad wouldn't yes. take us to the track or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and he didn't really pay for it. He'd like give us enough money for, I think, a set of tires, which I think back then was like 100 pounds. Um, but we had to find the money for everything else. So, yeah. But all that time, he was really pushing us to learn how to be computer programmers. And um, the day I left school, that's exactly what I had to do. Uh, yeah. He gave me like a two-minute crash course in programming, and then that became my day job. Um, and But I was using all my salary to go racing. Um, and then I met Claudio Piazzamuso, who became my – he had a real effect on my thinking as a driver, and he taught me much more detail about being a mechanic. Like still to this day, though, I lost, I lost uh, two or three national championships in the final round because I was such a bad mechanic. Um, and it was to do with like, I would leave a bolt loose in the carburetor or something like that. Like my jetting, yeah. my jets keep, kept falling out <laughs> and, um, that was all my fault. So I'm a terrible mechanic. If you want to not win a championship, then ask me, but I, I'm not afraid of getting my hands dirty. That's another no, thing. No, I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. Uh, this last weekend in the nation's cup, um, one of my teammates had a big crash and we had to rebuild the car. It was in a bad way and I, I got stuck in. I mean, I didn't know yeah. what I was doing. They they told me what to do, uh, yeah. but I wasn't afraid of getting stuck in. It was fun. Um, so yeah. just add that and to a learning, the resume. A learning experience, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now you talked about the, you're racing now currently in the Ferrari, the 488 GT3, which is a 3.9 liter turbo. And you had this onboard story of, of a 458 versus the 488, which people had asked you to do. And, how the, 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 the 488 was a naturally aspirated V8 and the gear change was aggressive and it had a, a, a tighter chassis and, a, and a, a tougher brake pedal. And now you moved on to the 488 3.9 liter turbo. So 458 naturally aspirated and the 488 was turbo. And you said about the bigger steering ratio increased makes it le less responsive for, for gentleman drivers, obviously easier to drive. And how you talked about the... the the more aero on the 488 allows it to take higher speeds through corners. And then you talked about the uh, the, um, the the traction control system, and you 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 explained it in the video, and you, you I, I kind of got lost. So can you explain then? Because because in the Sims we have a traction control system. Maybe it goes from from one to ten, or one to eleven, and maybe eleven is the highest, or vice versa. So explain to me the traction control system in the 488 briefly. I won't keep you too long. No problem. Um, the the TC in the four five eight was quite simple. It was one to ten. Yeah. Um, and we sat around uh, maybe three or four. But it was a very very good traction control system. I mean, the the, the TC in in the four five eight was beautiful, and the way it blended in uh, on corner exit was very predictable and nice. So kudos there. Yeah. Um, the four eighty eight TC is much more complicated. Uh, or complex. Um, you have two settings, TC1, TC2. TC1 determines uh, how much the car can slide 
before the TC activates. Okay. Okay. So that's the, I forget the name. But anyway, how much slide is TC1? And then TC2 is when the, T, when the traction control does activate, how much does it activate by? So you tend to have a big number for the slide amount and then a small number for the activation amount um, for the cut. Yeah. So you don't want too much cut because it affects performance, but uh, obviously you've got to manage the wheel spin, especially with the Pirellis. Um, but yeah, that's that's pretty much how it works. And that TC is in constant development. So the more you drive the car, the more feeling you have, the more you can speak with the engineers about modifying it. And um, yeah, I mean, I can't give away too much, but... No, of course it, not. It, no, it, no, it, no. The... Yeah, the basic level is you have these two buttons, how much slide and then how much cut. And uh, yes. we run both of them around three to five. So a very small window. So okay. usually it's actually both are the same value, three and three or five and five. Sometimes we'll go five and three. If it's very high tire degradation, then we'll go very high. We'll go seven, seven or even 10, 10. Um, but those okay. are extreme cases. Um, yes. I mean, in GT3s, and this is a funny thing about sim racing snobs um they're like oh we race without abs and traction control in the sim and i'm like oh that's cool and well done but in real life um the cars are built around these systems they're optimized for these systems so if you yes. turn them off you'll be slower um yeah. so the skill comes in how do you maximize these the systems available to you and mm. uh, yeah so the thing is, in sim racing, like traction control can be very aggressive. Like in Assetto Corsa and and i racing, um, yeah. and Gran Turismo, um, I either race with it off or around one out of ten because anything above that tends to just kill the engine. And in, in real life, it's not how it works at all. It's much more dynamic, much more elegant, if you will. Yeah. And then we'll fi a final point on the cars, and then we'll 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 move out. We'll move on to 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 Sims and before we close we'll, we'll be here all day um, Ferrari have just announced the 2020 488 GT3 Evo which debuts with with, with aero upgrades so the, I guess that would, that's what you will be driving next year I guess and then I, I was wanted to know in terms of uh, a technical level I guess this information is online anyway but but how close is a 488 GT3 to the four, to the to the road going 488 for example the GT3 has a 3 3.9 liter turbo and then the the the, the, the gearbox the differential the differential the ecu how how close is it technically to the road going version uh, it's not close at all <laughs> completely um, completely different yeah i think um yeah even the chassis is different uh it yeah. looks it looks like the the 48 and that's about the end of the line really um yeah uh, i'm trying to think um oh the power st the the steering rack so the ratio is straight out of the road car um obviously optimized but that's why we have this big steering ratio it's because the ratio is the same ratio as the road car. Um, the gearbox is a racing gearbox. Um, the engine is actually not like the road engine because uh, the road engine has 700 and what, 50 horsepower. Um, GD3 yeah. cars have 500 horsepower. So oh, of course it's the balance of performance. Yes, of yeah, course. So, yeah. so the engine is built around those optimizations. Yes, of course. Uh, yeah. Very, very expensive if you blow one up. I suppose the windscreen yeah. wiper is the same. Yeah, um, but even there, I mean, <laughs> yeah. talking nonsense. Um, uh, elements of the, the interior are look the same, but are different moldings. Um, 
So, yeah, it, this is the thing. Uh, the 458 was actually very, uh, quite similar. Uh, not not super similar, but there was a lot of crossover. Whereas the 488, it's just, it's a race car that looks like the road car. So it's further, 488 is technically further away from the road going version than yes. the 458 would have been. Yes. Okay, that's interesting. Yes. So it's more, it's more, more, uh, more of a silhouette. And then in terms of um, Sims, and again, back to what you talked about with, with Zach, you talked about you're waiting for the kind of crossover between Sims and, and real life and how, how uh, some of the GT Academy drivers have made it. Um, like, I guess Jan Mardelborough, is that how you pronounce it? He's yeah. racing in Japan right now, last I heard. And then you talked about how, how, um, at some point, or even now, or in the future, there may be more money in e- in esports than in real life. So, did you, did you did you ever consider competing in esports yourself? Yeah, I would have to loved gen- to to, gener- to generate some funds. Um, not not for the funds, but for the the prestige, I suppose. Um, yeah, for the fun of it. Yeah. Yeah, I I in twenty ten I did the GT Academy. Um, Oh, did you? I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I entered it and I finished yeah. in because you, first you have to do the leaderboard thing, uh, you know, from home. And then if you're in the top whatever of your country, then you get a call to do the the live event. And yes. from the live event, you do the knockouts and then you go to the the real car event. Um, yeah. And in the in the leaderboard events. Um, was it 2010 or 2011? I never remember clearly. Uh, I finished fourth in the world. My my time was fourth fastest overall. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, but uh, I never got a call because I was from South Africa. So, and GT Academy is not for South Africans. Um, ah, okay. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, I mean that actually that was that was the first inkling that I still had some speed in me. Um, so if I could be fourth in out of a million entrants. Uh, then maybe I'm fast enough to come back to racing one day. Um, but I would love to. It's an aspiration of mine, but I'm not quick enough um, to be at a FIA Gran Turismo event competing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they don't invite South Africans. I'm from South Africa. Ah, okay. Well, um, yeah, interesting. Yeah. And yeah, so I would love to officially take part in one of those things. Not in the pro am race. I want to be. I want to be there on merit, um, but I don't get enough time anymore because I'm traveling so much. And that's I'm, true. Yeah. The, the, the top guys, besides maybe Mikel Hizale, who's incredibly talented at Gran Turismo, um, and Igor Fraga, uh, they they spend a long time practicing every day, and I've seen it. Um, yeah. You know, when it, in December when I'm not racing, oh no, no, sorry, in January when I'm not racing, I spend a lot of time in Gran Turismo, and I do get much quicker. I I start to consistently compete with the top guys. So, mm. so yeah, it's a, it's, it's 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 a name of mine. I wanna I wanna get to, I wanna compete against some races, but I know that, <laughs> I know that I'm not quick enough, unfortunately, at that level anymore. I I definitely was. There was a period where I could have definitely hung out with the big dogs, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you were fourth in the world, so back in 2010 or 2011 or so, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, yeah. that was back then. That's what, almost 10 years ago. 
So almost indeed, time time goes quickly. Yeah. But you did make you did make a point that you wouldn't be where you are today without Sims, which of course is true. And yes. you made another you made another point that in games you can change everything like the differential, the preload, the anti roll bars, and and how in real life as a pro driver you get like a max fa- five laps to change your setup, which is kind of which is kind of interesting. Um, and then you mentioned um, your your like we talked about before your two times uh, uh, two class winner at Spa at Spa, but you're you're bad at Spa in a sim. So why do you think that is? You mentioned that. Um, good question. And actually, last night I was playing Spa and Gran Turismo. Um, oh yeah, because it's new, isn't it? So yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know, I was like a second off, and um, uh, I don't know. I I think that. Um, what do I think? I was thinking, of, like, why am why am I slower in the game? And uh, I don't know. I mean, when you race it in real life, you, you're scared of crashing. You're very alert. You're very awake. It, yeah. It feels very intense. Um, and in the game, it's just... The spy in the game... I mean, okay, Sector 1 is a straight between uh, La Source and Lacombe. So Eau Rouge is not a corner in the game. And Sector 3 is is a straight from Stavelot 2 all the way to the bus stop chicane and through Blanchemont. Yeah. Um, so those two sectors don't really matter. So it's not really a track uh, that I... Um, how do I pronounce this? How do I say it right? It, I, it's not scary in the game. And no, it, no. I don't, I, I don't know. Maybe... I, I, I don't know why, but I'm just guessing. Maybe I don't take it seriously enough uh, to be yeah. quick in the game. And I, anyway, I, I prefer more technical tracks in general in simulators. Yes. Um where you have brake inputs and stuff. And I don't know. I mean, I think I'm going to play Spa after this to do a track guide. And yeah. uh, I think I'll find another half second. But I'm still going to be miles off the top, guys. Um, and I will never know why. <laughs> <laughs> it's just different. Yeah, it's different. It is. Just uh, different, yeah. But look, yeah. Uh, full credit to Gran Turismo, by the way. I was expecting it to be worse, to be dead honest with you. Mm. Yes. And they've actually done a really, really good model of the track and if you don't get the right apex uh through eau rouge the the way that you can feel the force feedback the 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 bouncing through the force feedback and the way the car flexes um that's quite real that feels to be realistic and um you know i just feel like yeah we don't have enough time but uh you know, some races just don't give Gran Turismo enough credit. Simple, no, and uh, no. they should because they've done a really good job with Spa, um, and I just think they deserve a bit more credit for what they've done. Uh, yeah. And yes, I racing in Assetto Corsa and R Factor are very good, but I played R Factor yesterday, and I was, everyone says it's the best sim at the at the moment. Um, and I was like, meh, I don't know. It feels like a simulator. That's about it. They all feel like games, and um, some of them get things right, some of them get things wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, last night I was on I was on iRacing and I definitely there's this this thing with snap oversteer where you land up facing backwards in the gravel, which just does not happen in real life. Um, but yeah. the sim racing guys seem to think that that's realistic, but it's not. Um, yeah. So you know they're all they're all guilty of doing something wrong. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I have I have a. D- Notes here on the Sims and on the Sims. What did, what was it you were driving in in, in R Factor Two? Uh, an LMP two car, because my yeah. okay. my my friend is going to be racing LMP twos for the first time. Um, so I went to his house to 
for a little bit of fun. And uh, and we we used the LMP2. Uh, I can't remember which one it was. I think it was Arica. Um, yes, and it was probably, at most probably, yeah. It, it was at Portimao. It felt cool, uh, but it just still felt like a game. He said it was realistic, though, by the way, because um, he's already tested the P2. And he said there were certain elements that the game was replicating which uh, happened in real life. Um, but there was other elements also. Like, we could, as hard as we could try, we we really struggled to lock the brakes, and we had no ABS on. Um, but in real life, it's much yeah. easier to lock up. Um, and what was the other thing? Oh, uh, when you're in like a long slide, like mm-hmm. let's say you've lost the rear and you're trying to catch the rear. Um, in real life, you'll tend to, once you've lost the rear in a P2 or any sort of mid-engine car, um, it's very, it's almost impossible to catch. You, you're almost gone. You're gone for good. And you, 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 what you're trying to do from there is minimize or maximize rather the slide so that you're facing the right direction by the end of it. Um, but in our factor, it's much easier to catch. And yes, mm-hmm. we had all the assists off to anyone who's listening. Um, we had it set to racing driver spec. Uh, yeah. And so there were certain elements. There's certain, there's certain elements in all the games, by the way. There's, they all get some things right, but they also get some things wrong. The way I explain it is um, if you could imagine this world, our planet, with 98% gravity, okay, that we compared yeah. to what we have now. Everything yeah. would look the same, right? It would look similar, but there would be a difference. Like people yeah. would be a little bit taller. Yeah. Or if, let's say let's say 99.8% gravity. Everyone would be a little bit taller. The leaves would fall off the tree a little bit slower. Balls would bounce just a little bit higher. So it looks and feels like the real world, but there's something not right. Something's so missing. Yeah. That's simulators. Mm. Good, good analogy, yeah. And you talked about how, for example, turn one at Suzuka is is the is the same in Sims as in real life, but 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 real life, but often Sims don't get the don't get the curbs on the S's correctly. So which yeah. which 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 is which I can appreciate. And I also and something I noted, you talked about how you use the the bumper cam in GT Sport, and that's the field of view. That's the view you like, <laughs> and uh, and and people commented. You you, I think you used an expression, field of view prima donnas, which made me laugh. But um, like I'm the same. I don't really care. Like you know, because you have, you have single screen, triple screen, wide aspect ratio. You have VR. Like you you use whatever makes you feel happy and uh, makes you feel. Uh, content in the car and you talked about people commenting on your your field of view and i racing and you said well basically that's what i see when i'm in the real car when i'm driving the ferrari <laughs> uh, 488 gt3 so i thought i thought i thought that was very interesting mate i have never in my life found i find it so utterly like it's bizarre and ridiculous um I didn't expect that when i uh, posted a video of i racing that people would complain about my view the choice of view. It's like, guys, race with what you're comfortable with. And then they say, no, technically you're wrong because this is what you should see. And I, I say to them, no, I know exactly what I see. And that's what I've said it to in the game. So yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I, I, I just, uh, I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to say that the screen is a window to the world. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you must set that window to have the right aspect ratio um, as if you could see a sign in right in front of you, how big would that sign look in front of you in real life? Okay, that's how big it must look in the game, and that's how you set up your field of view. 
I understand. But 90% of these guys set up their field of view accordingly, and they're basically sitting on the dashboard with their nose yes. touching the windscreen. And I'm yes. like, guys, if you sat in a real car, a GT car, <laughs> you can't touch the dashboard with your hand. If you no. sit in the, in the way that you're meant no. to sit and you reach out, you can't touch the dashboard. And that's how I, I set my screen up to be as if I was looking at myself in the car. I don't set it to be a window to the world. And that's what I like. And mm. I've driven like that in all simulators for as long as I can remember. Um, and it's fun. It feels, that, to me, that's more immersive. Uh, yeah. Whereas in Gran Turismo, the reason I don't use the dashboard view is you can't see anything. Uh, no, no. <laughs> so, and you can't, you can't change it, isn't it? So, so yeah. I don't have a PlayStation. You can't change it anyway, so you need to use bumper cam. So yeah, so you, yeah. you can't see anything in Gran Turismo with the, with the dashboard view, which is a shame because yeah. I love seeing the interiors of these cars. I really, really love seeing the modeling of the interiors. Um, mm. That that's comes from like a video game background, you know? And yeah. And I appreciate the time and effort that the interior designers use. I mean, Assetto Corsa went through so, went to so much effort to get these interiors right, and we spoke. They spoke to me a lot about all the switches and the and the 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 numbers on the dash and what they represent. And I love looking at that stuff. Even yeah. you know, so that's how I set up my field of view. And I would love to do a, a meme video about. If I was a sim racer in the real world, how would my seat position look? And uh, just basically yeah. move the seat all the way up to the steering wheel. Take off the steering wheel, by the way, because they also don't like seeing the steering wheel in the game. Yeah, uh, yeah take yeah. a photo of that. So getting to do it. I have to do it. I'm going to next time I'm near a racing car. Actually, the only thing I don't do, I do is I usually turn off the the hands, the simulated yeah. hands, because yeah. because I like looking at the wheel. So that's the yes. thing, because if somebody has a detailed version, if somebody has a detailed replica of a Ferrari or a Porsche or a Bentley or a BMW wheel, I, I, I like to see the wheel. So and you talked about actually, you talked about uh, back to your chat with Zach again, but how you, uh, you, you and you mentioned the commenting to the guys from from Kunos about the um, the Ferrari, the details on the dash in uh, I said to Corsa Competizione, and then you said that you 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 noted to them that the curbs in Zandvoort were missing, and then they f they fixed it like straight away, which is yeah. impressive. Oh, it's surreal! I was like, holy! Yeah. I, excuse me. Uh, no, I just, no, no problem. Yeah, I, I just had a, an influence on a game, like quite like a, quite a clear influence on on how a game is going to be played by people, and the, yeah. yeah, they they changed the curbs. So yeah. um, <laughs> that was awesome. But I I have a. A Slack, not a Slack, a Discord channel with them. Um, and we speak, not all the time, but whenever I play the game, I drop some feedback in there. Which is a good idea, yeah. yeah. And then I guess I guess a final note, if you have these uh, field of view prima donnas with the with the arc of the steering wheel filling half the screen, and then uh, they're, unlike you, they can't go into a set of course competizione and drive as themselves in a Ferrari 488 GT3 so so I think <laughs> I think I think that says it all and there you were like playing a playing a set of course competizione and driving as yourself and that must be a nice feeling so uh, it's completely strange man it's completely yeah, strange completely bizarre yeah <laughs> yeah yeah bizarre. yeah because I, I promise you I'm a gamer I'm just a casual gamer like everyone else I promise you and then yeah. to see suddenly my name in a game is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. 
exactly and that must be a, 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 a lovely feeling to, to have worked, worked so far and away come full circle if you will and there you there you are you're, you're, you're David there's David Perel in uh, as a selectable menu option in a yeah. video game that must be must be bizarre, bizarre. I, I have no yeah I have notes here so much more notes so many things we're, I wanted to talk about we're, we're already over over time and, and I guess we could maybe talk some other day but 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 um the current state of 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 motorsport i mean it's changing now you have electrical via uh, uh there are electric series coming on and and you have of course internal combustion engine racing still and then you have the um the uh world Endurance championship you talked about this with with zach for example how how lmp1 is kind of falling apart and it's a bit of embarrassing in terms of their their balance of performance and the same for GTE and and then and then how how can Blancpain get BOP right balance of performance when the World Endurance Championship can't so what's your feeling right now if if, if it's an kind of an overall question in terms of uh, uh, electric for electric versus um versus internal combustion and maybe something that had occurred to me as I was writing notes for this do you see a point where where the GT3 class could potentially become hybrid in the future. I know that at least for the next five years, there's no hybrid plans. Um, mm. I hope not, because the car is already quite heavy, so they'll just go heavier. Um, I have no problem with uh, Formula E, for example. I really enjoy watching Formula mm. E. I look forward to it. Um, I do prefer the sound of an engine, but if you watch an ELMS race, race live, trust me, those LMP2 engines, they're so loud that... After 20 minutes, you you're looking for headphones to block out the sound. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Um, that's not saying that I don't I don't like engine sound. I love engine sound. I send my brother videos of V12s all the time. Um, but I have no problem with electric racing coming in. Um, where I think there's a mismatch though is like there's going to be rally cross is going to be electric soon, and I think that's a indeed, mismatch. Yeah. Um, yeah, but so I, can, do I. Mm. I can understand it with formula racing because formula racing is meant to be a pinnacle of technology in terms of cars. So it makes sense there. Um, I think it's overcomplicated in, in formula one. We don't need the batteries there. I would love it if F1 was lighter. They're about mm. 150 kilograms too heavy now. Um, but this current state of motorsports. Um, okay. So, I think we're at the top of a bubble now, especially in the financial world. Um, there's too many GT championships in the world. Um, and I'm a bit worried, not because of the style of racing. I think GT racing has got the formula spot on. Um, I'm just concerned about the, the, uh, I'm concerned about the economy and how it's going to affect GT racing in the, in the next two to three years. So yeah, indeed. Yeah. that, that to me is a concern at the moment. Um, I like the new rules of the F1. I like what Liberty has done with F1. I know there's a lot of critics about how they've handled F1. I think they've handled it brilliantly. They've invested money in it. They finally brought F1 racing to our phones so we can watch it on on our laptop. I mean, on our in our browsers and stuff, as opposed to trying to find a, a TV channel somewhere um, to exactly. chat it on. Um, they've done good things with social media. I'm a huge Formula One fan, by the way. I love Formula One. Mm. Um, but that's a podcast on its own. Um, but yeah, uh, the, I'm just concerned about uh, WEC still. 
WEC and LMS. LMS is healthy, um, but WEC is, is still in, still has its problems. I think there's like nine LMP2s, uh, nine GTEs, and seven or six LMP1s. So that's a big problem. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The P1s is over now, so the hypercars are coming next year. But there's only two manufacturers involved so far. Um, Ferrari said they don't want to get involved. Um, mm. I, I honestly think they should have just taken GTE and given them more power. That's honestly what I think they should have done. Um, point, yeah. Mm. Instead, they've created this new complex uh, category. Some will be hybrids, some won't be hybrids. They, it's clear as day. It's very clear to me that they cannot get the balance of performance right. They keep adding weight to the Toyotas. The Toyotas keep pulling away. Um, and I don't see how they're going to get that right with the hypercars. The reason the SRO gets a good with GD3s is because the SRO has two dedicated test drivers who drive each car, and then that then they set the BOP based on that so that the manufacturers mm. can't hide their performance. Um, whereas in, in WEC, they use this dynamic BOP system, which uh, it's a formula, and they adjust it accordingly, and it's random, in my opinion. As much as I say it's orderly, it's actually random, in my opinion, because if you look at uh, uh, Lamar this year, Aston Martin struggled in testing, okay? Then they got yeah. pole position by less than a tenth of a second. And then they got this massive BOP hit, which put them completely out of contention before the race. And it was it was done dynamically with their with their formula, with their system. And um, it's just a shame. Um, so I don't know how they're going to manage the hypercars, honestly. Yeah, interesting. And then dynamically, do you mean, is it like programming inside the ECU or how does it actually yeah. function? Well, it's, it's, okay, a, interesting. it's a case of uh, adjusting the boost levels. And the weight. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then okay. they look at your sector times. They don't look at lap times because you can you can hide your lap times, but you can't really hide your sectors. So they look no. at things like top speed. They look at sectors, and and they go off that. And um, yeah, yeah, that's 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 how they do it. Interesting. Interesting. And and I know that I did note that that you when you talk about Zacta, you said how how the the, the SRO for the GT3 they have. You know, a, a, a pair or so of drivers who basically go across and race all the brands or test all the brands rather which seems to be the way to go and, and of course as as you and Zach noted you know you have you have a you have the a Bentley matching up with which is like the big tank matching up with with the other cars which of course is interesting but it's it works. phenomenal yeah, yeah. it's it phenomenal works, but it works and in terms of your your sim racing gear now you had you had a, a, a uh, rig overview, and you have uh, <laughs> Thrustmaster like I do, but you're uh, you're uh, you have the TGT, which is the which is the specialist uh, rim or base rather for um, GT Sport, and it has that kind of subwoofer thing on the back of it, which is which is which is only used by Gran Turismo Sport, if I remember correctly. Correct. The, the, the TGT base. I have the TSPC, which is the origin of that. I bought a second hand from a guy in Scotland. <laughs> Long story. And you have a beautiful. You have a. You have a Sparco rig, and you also have the um, a Thrustmaster pedals. But you said you'd like to. You'd like to invest in a in a load cell brake at some point, which many people also talk about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yes. So. Yeah. I. Uh... I've told Thrustmaster before I joined them that um, I think their pedals need work. Yeah. And I do believe that they're working on pedals. They just haven't told me yet. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm hoping because that's 
I think their wheelbase cost to benefit ratio is the best belt driven wheel on the market. Okay, yeah, it's I, expensive I own, though, yeah. Mm. Yeah, but if, if you compare it to a Fanatec wheel, which is more expensive. Um, mm. So so that at that level, because after that, you're talking multiple thousands of euros for a, a, a belt-driven wheel or a direct-drive wheel, which is good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I really like the TGT, but I, I've told them that the pedals need work, and they, I, hope, I hope that they're going to make an up, upgrade there. Um, yeah. Yeah, but... Uh, you know, I like to keep things simple. Prior to this, I played on a on my office desk with a rotating chair, office chair, and that's what I'm doing right now. Actually. Yeah, yeah funnily enough, yeah. yeah, yeah, and it yeah. was it was more than fine, and that's yeah, what I love exactly. about sim racing. All these toys, which I now have, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you don't need. You don't need these toys to be fast. You do not no, you need don't. these toys to be fast, and they're just toys. Uh, they they're really nice to have. You know, they're very very nice to have. Um, but at the end of the day, if you want to go fast, that's that's not a requirement. And in relation to Trustmaster specifically, are you using the, the the mod for the pedal that comes in the box? Have you installed that? Uh, I installed it and then I took it off. <laughs> ah, okay. The conical brake mod. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it didn't feel right. Okay, it didn't feel it feels too short because I noticed that when I every time I turn on the PC, like booting from cold, I have to kind of press the pedal all the way to kind of calibrate it inside the driver to make sure that the the, the pedal the pedal um the travel of the pedal is probably properly detected because I am using the um brake pedal mod that, that that comes in the box and you from your patreon supporters you're able to get a, get a new gaming pc and you've also used vr as well so how many titles have you used vr for and what did you think um i've used vr in a set of course a set of course competizione i racing and R Factor, but not at my house. I use them at uh, real life simulator. I'm not sorry, at uh, more professional simulators. Um, uh, yeah, and it's very cool. It's very immersive. Um, if I had the money, well, I, you know, I probably could afford it, but I don't think it's necessary. Again, to me, the bells and whistles are not the be all and end all. No. So, no, uh, what do I say about it? I love VR. I mean, every time I put it on, I'm like, oh my god! Like, I'm mm. I'm in a I'm in a racing car right now. <laughs> yeah. So that that's exactly. cool, you know. That's very yeah. cool. Uh, but it's yeah. I mean, uh, this is another thing. People say, oh, David, you need triple screens and you need VR. It's like, oh, I actually don't need any of those things, but they are cool. Yeah, nice but to have. Yeah, very yeah. nice to have, and it does mm. actually. It improves the perception of the racetrack, you know. Um, mm. It makes the racetrack feel a bit scary, a bit tighter and all that and the interior is awesome when you have the vr so that's that's all pretty cool but uh i i don't plan on buying a vr set anytime soon um i'm actually more interested in um a a better tv because at the moment i'm using a a small monitor which um is not the best actually i'm gonna google that after this thing to to look at i want a curved display that's my next yeah that i was just going to say it and I mentioned it to, to Niels Huskenveld when he was on that 34-inch monitor seems to be the way to go. Although Niels mentioned you might sacrifice field of view a little bit because obviously, well, it, the field of view, the, the, the aspect ratio, of course, depends on the physical device you're actually using, be it VR or triples or singles or, or, or wide aspect ratio. But the based on the field of view that you use and even I, I think a, field, uh, a 34, 35-inch 
wide aspect ratio monitor seems to be the way to go and you would also get more desktop space when you're using the computer as a rule so that yeah seems to be the way to go yeah yeah indeed, for sure indeed. Now we'll we'll we finish up. We've we've been talking for two hours, David. Yeah. And we could talk more, and I, I have so many notes and so many things I wanted to ask you, but I don't want to keep you. And now, in terms of your 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 kind of, um, you talked about um um you, you are an interface designer and your your use of um Adobe Illustrator. Are you are you still doing that on your the about page of your YouTube channel? You talk you have a. A WordPress WordPress theme company. There's references to uh, uh, layers for WordPress using Elementor. So, are you still working on that on some level with your brother, or uh, not really? Um, my brother mostly does that stuff still, um, but I I'm never at home, so I just don't have the time that to to look after a business. You need full time attention and and of all course, that. Of course, of course, yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, it's just. Uh, I don't miss WordPress, to be honest with you. I, I really, it was really stressful to to build a company in that industry, and um, very difficult. And the the customers are very demanding because you give away stuff for free, and the people who want stuff for free are the most demanding. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but I still do HTML and CSS stuff to stay sharp. Um, yeah, I, I can still cut up a page. That's what we call it, a uh, design rather, into a page. Um, yeah. And I still do that. My my own website was done by me. Um, I thought so. Yeah. And and uh, and I still I have a passion for web design, so I still keep in, on tabs on that stuff. Um, mm. But I'm very much disconnected from that industry. And my brother contacts me if he needs help with some CSS code. Uh, but that's about it. Markup. Some yeah. people say CSS yeah. isn't code. It is code, but it's a it is code. It is technically yeah. markup. But anyway, <laughs> it's almost like object oriented code. And yeah. actually, one question, one question I had here, if I may, um, and you, I guess you doing your your YouTube content with your you know your onboards and your so and so on, and maybe doing vlogs with a gimbal and and making your own website. In terms of your technical knowledge, and and then back to, for example. McKinney Rinaldi, like not even replying to emails, and if he replies, sending an SMS. And I guess I'm thinking of of Nikki Team as well, who streams and stuff. So, so you and Nikki, in terms of professional drivers, let's say in the in in the silver, gold, and platinum, are you guys the technical guys? Are you guys the exception? Are you among amongst the crowd? Or, I mean, are there are many of the drivers are, are they are they tech, are they tech savvy or are would you is that is maybe it's it's a, it's a, I guess the point I'm trying to make was are are, are guys like you um guys like you and 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 Nikki team are you can do you kind of break the mold in terms of the kind of the social media engagement of social media that you do I mean so many guys of course have Instagram but they don't do do, do the the full gamut maybe they don't design their own presence they don't do their own videos and so on if you yeah. am, am I making any sense <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah um no I mean my my guys that my friends at the racetrack they tease me a little bit for the onboard stories and I pray to God that my real racing driver friends don't watch them but they do um yeah but uh no, we are one in a few. Most racing drivers couldn't be bothered. Um, and I just do it because I have a passion for sim racing and real racing. And I want to draw the, I want to connect the dots. 
Yes. Um, of course. Yeah. And I mean, look, my my pre my my web business was built off initially uh, off a video blog, so I kind of have a history with with creating videos, and yeah. not not well produced ones, but putting something that people watch is I've done it before, um, and I just wanted to yeah. continue doing it, but. Uh, yeah, it seems that we're the only ones uh, who could be bothered. Um, and I'm surprised that my team let me post some of the videos I do post. Like, I'm not allowed to post the GTE stuff, for example. And Yeah, yeah. And me- I noticed you mentioned that, so sorry. Yeah. Some of the onboards, you're either not allowed to post at all, or like, yes, like the most recent video, you had to wait until you could actually post it. Yeah. So that was interesting. Yeah, so the I wasn't on- aware of that, yeah. The onboard stories could stop at any moment. Um, which is a shame. Um, but for the now, for the, for the meanwhile, um, I, I post them. Um, you as make often them as while I, you can. Yeah. I, make yeah. Them I can. I enjoy making them. Um, I enjoy the comments. I try to reply to all the comments. It's getting more and more difficult to be honest. Um, but I enjoy the comments. I enjoy the interaction. Um, mm. and it's fun. It's, it's fun to show yeah. people what I do and you know, the people in the racing world don't care. Like I, I, I wouldn't be able to send, one of my onboards to a racing uh, to a team manager be like, "Hey, look how good I am." He wouldn't he wouldn't bother with that. Um, no, it would mean nothing to him as such. Maybe, pretty yeah. pretty much. Um, they're not yeah, looking for how fast you are, by the way. It's, no. I mean, we need another hour to explain that, but they're looking for a professional driver, yeah. um, which is not a fastest driver. Uh, no. um, but it's nice to share because I I know that at least with the onboard stories, I know no one else is doing it, which is shocking. I mean, YouTube is huge. Um, but I know no one else is doing that in the racing world. Yeah. So I've managed to find a niche for now. I know it will be filled yeah. up, but for now I've got a little bit of a niche and it's cool. Yeah. And I guess it's your personality that shines through and one of the reasons why you do it. And I guess it's the same for Nicky theme as well. Nicky and Nicky has his own approach to things, which, yeah, he's which great. people, which people engage with. And it's, and it's the same for you now. And then we'll, we'll, we'll try and, We'll try and wrap up. We'll be here for the whole day. Uh, do you want to plug? What have you got now? You have your online store, and I'll have all the links in the um, in the in the podcast description. I'll just use the links that you have in your own um, videos with the little emojis. I like I like the way you put the links together. So that looks Thank really you. cool. So you you have your you have your online store. You have Coach Dave. You have your Patreon. So is there something you want to plug in terms of in terms of those in terms of events you have coming up in terms of videos you have coming up in the future uh yeah so uh, shop.daveapparel.net is my um uh, where you can buy some t-shirts and caps and stuff um then if you want to get coached by me um i have a if you go davidperil.net forward slash coaching um i i coach i coach some races and some real races via i use assessor corsa or uh, Gran Turismo or iRacing, whatever you want, really. And uh, we do, it's like an hour of coaching there, um, which is cool. And what else? I'm racing at the end of the month in South Africa, Kyle Army Nine Hour. You can watch it on uh, youtube.com forward slash GT World. Look yes. out for the 333, red, uh, green Ferrari. I almost said red Ferrari. Um, and then I do the Gulf 12 Hour. That's in December, but that's quite far away. But anyway, I mean, if you follow me on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash Dave Peril, then you'll find out all my latest stuff. And please subscribe to my YouTube channel because I post cool stuff there. And thank Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate it.
Indeed, and thank you very much for for joining. So we'll we'll call it we'll call it a day. And and David, thank you very much for for joining the show. I I look forward to uh, putting this online, and I think it's been a great discussion. Absolutely, thank you so much for your time. Thank you to everyone who's been listening. I know it was a long one, but I hope you found it interesting. And uh, look forward to more in the future. Thanks so much. Yes, please God. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Is that the is that the outro music? Do 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 do.